0: Coming to you from the TLD studios in Temecula, California, it's the Whiskey Throttle Show, taking you deep inside the lives of the legends and leaders of our sport. This week's guest is brought to you by Yamaha, the leaders in the power sports industry. Motocross bikes, street bikes, adventure bikes, side-by-sides, quads, boats, generators, Yamaha sets the standard. Yamaha revs your heart. Method Race Wheels. The strongest, lightest, fastest wheels in off-road. Method dominates the off-road market with wheels for your truck, sprinter, jeep, or UTV. Go to methodracewheels.com forward slash whiskey throttle for 20% off your order. Troy Lee Designs, built for the world's fastest racers. TLD blends elite level protection with industry-leading style and performance. Moto, bike, helmet paint, casual wear, Whatever your passion, Troy Lee Designs is waiting for you on the next level. Nahilo Concepts. Enhance your riding experience with superior products like the start stop conversion kit, fuel pet cocks, frame grip tape, lever grip, grip donuts, secondary on switch, billet foot pegs, billet throttle housings, and so much more. Nahilo Concepts produces exceptional products, all of which are made right here in America and by SKDA. SKDA is the ultimate destination for exceptional motocross graphics, customer service, and artistic excellence. Trust them to elevate your ride and showcase your individuality on the track, making every ride an exceptional experience. Hey folks, thank you for joining us here at the Whiskey Throttle Show. I'm your host, David Pingry, and today we've got a great guest. Somebody that uh, has been on our list from the very beginning, and if you're a a fan of Moto history, you're gonna love this, Mister Gunnar Lindström. Now, is it Gunnar, or am I okay to say Gunnar? It's Gunnar. Okay, Gunnar. So um, that's how your buddy Mark Blackwell always says it. When he But I'm used to just. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's great to have you on. Uh, You have such a rich history in our sport here in America and and over in uh, Sweden. And you're, you're tied to the sport here. I don't know how many people know this, but your son, Lars, is the Honda team manager now. Perfect. So, man, talk about a cool history. You you managed that team for a few years in the late 70s into 1980, and now your son's taken over. That's got to be pretty cool.
1: Yeah, that is pretty cool. Yeah. And luckily, he had a much better start than I did. You know, my start was kind of chaotic Yeah, you know, at Honda. So, uh, yeah, we'll get to that.
0: We'll get to that for sure. Um I want to start. We start with our Method Race Wheels front end chatter. They bring in you the uh, strongest, lightest, fastest wheels in off road racing. If you guys want a discount on wheels, if you're in that market, 20% off using our code. You just go to methodracewheels.com forward slash whiskey throttle and they'll send you a 20% off code. It's a pretty good deal. Uh, So I got a couple questions to get started. I just want to ask you. You've been been around this sport. uh, One of very few guys, you know, I would put DeCoster, maybe Mark, and a few of these guys in this category that's seen Evolution from the 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, now into 2020. You've just seen such a big span of our sport. Um, what are some of the advancements to you that were really, really important, really significant in motorcycles?
1: Well, in looking back at it all, suspension has got to be the big thing. Hmm. That is the big thing. And, and we'll touch on that later and how it developed within Husqvarna. And within the industry itself and we were we were kind of uh, allergic to some of those changes that we needed to make but we'll come back to the start of the whole thing with the yamaha and hawk and anderson and the, yep. you know the monoshock and how we actually um, uh, understood what actually happened around that time and i think you would agree with me, with me when we get there there was a lot of confusion as to why the yamaha was so good
0: Oh, really? Okay. Oh, yeah. And it makes sense when you say that because I've ridden some late 70s, 79 YZ250s and some, some uh, Makos. They went fast. Speed, mm. Horsepower and speed have never been a problem. That's right. But getting them stopped and, and getting them to handle, that has been That's it. where the big advancement is. Getting
1: yeah. through the hoops and and, yeah. and getting them to stop. That's right. Same thing. Yep.
0: Um, well, very interesting. We'll, we'll dive more into that stuff because you had a big hand in, in a lot of that. Um And the other thing I got to ask you, and I feel free to share what you can or or you want to, but with Lars now running factory Honda week after week, I keep seeing Chase Sexton and it's become like almost frustrating to me. My heart's breaking for this kid because he's out front, he's doing everything right. And then just out of nowhere, he goes down and I'm, it's happened so many times this season. We've, we've guessed maybe it's is it something with the suspension is it is there a setting is he just trusting his tire too much is he in his own head what do you think's going on and have you talked to lars about it and is he frustrated i'm just curious to get your your opinion of all that
1: well i'm sure i'm sure he's frustrated you know we all are but I I intentionally don't talk about that kind of shop with Lars because he's got his hands full. He's got people that know and understand the bike better than I do. But if you want me to comment on it, the only thing I would say, you mentioned it, he's leaning on the front tire too much, Mm -hmm. and the tire gives way. know, doesn't do what he expects it to do, and I'll leave it at that.
0: Yeah, because a lot of those crashes are sort of front-end tuck or Mm -hmm. front-end push. Mm -hmm. But then we've had some where... You know, the back end comes around and you just go, what just happened? I, <laughs> I can't I can't figure it out, but I... I um, but I, he is the fastest. Oh.
1: And therefore, those things happen yeah. to the fastest person. True. You know, if you back off from that, you may be steady through everything, but, yeah. you know, the fastest. I, I got to believe
0: something. his time's coming. He, he'll get there. Oh, he right? will. He's yeah. a kid. Yeah.
1: And he will, and
0: he'll learn. And... So how often does, does Lars ever call you and, and ask you questions or lean into you for advice or suggestions no Nah. No. does he know does we he never, know what a resource he talk has shop oh inti- really
1: that's intentional you know okay because he's been there he knows yeah. and i'm an old timer you know and, and i don't really have anything you know if there's anything we've talked about recently it is how to build a new semi-trailer for the for the team you know mm. we've had some discussions about that
0: okay yeah layout and things like that well
1: you know and and you know the electrical system and Right. You know, all the other things, you know, so mm. those trailers are complicated. We came, to, I came to find out.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes, they are. Yeah. All right. Well, good stuff. Hey, uh, quick reminder, get over to whiskeythrottlemedia.com. If you guys haven't seen all the content we have over there, uh, new merch, we've got a forum, uh, lots of cool things. And we are building a whole bunch of new merch. Um, also elevateactionsports.com. If you're looking for some coaching, some incredible online coaching there. Ryan Hughes, Jeff Emig, Grant Langston, Johnny Campbell, and myself. Uh, we've got media training classes in there. There's sports psychology classes, really anything you need to improve. I uh, highly recommend checking that out. And Our guest is brought to you today by Yamaha. If you guys have not gone to a Yamaha dealer and seen all the products they have, whether you're looking for off-road, motocross, side-by-sides, uh, they really set the standards, so we appreciate them being involved here with us. All right, tell me about your, uh, your hometown in Sweden. I couldn't pronounce the name. I wrote it down. Well, in
1: translation, it means Oak Lake. Okay. Oak Lake. Okay. And it's a little, real little city. It's 10,000 people. And I don't think it has grown very much. And that is t- intentional. You know, they've mm. kept it small. It's um, it's a um, lot of tradition. It's 600 years old. Mm. So it's got some of those old streets, you know, that they had. or they were very narrow. And there were horse stables where you parked your horses while you went. Did your shopping yeah. on Saturday if you were a farmer? Or, yeah. You know what? So I came out of there. My my dad was a farmer, and I grew up on the farm. And when I came to go to school at seven years of age. You know, I hadn't seen the city very much, so I was all surprised about seeing here. a fire engine, you know. Oh, really? There's people working with jackhammers, you know, uh, and I stood for hours, literally for hours, watching construction work being done on a house or a road or something like that. So,
0: just fascinated by just,
1: I, all this yeah. new stuff. I had no idea, you know, because yeah. I was far away, you know, and cows and huh. few, a few pigs, I suppose. And
0: yeah. <laughs> what a cool childhood, though, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. Uh, yeah. Compared to today, yeah, what a juxtaposition. Yeah, and
1: I stood there, boy. one of these guys, he had a jackhammer on, and I remember to this day, big gloves he had, it, and he's hammering away on the asphalt, and I'm looking, I'm saying, I wonder if I will ever grow up to be as big so I can have my own jackhammer <laughs> and hammer away on the street.
0: Yeah. That's great. Um, yeah. You were born in 43, is that right? Yep. What do you remember about the war? Was that a, an impact on you at all at the time? Or were you just kind of insulated from that? Not at all.
1: Hmm. Nothing. You okay. know, there's one thing I remember from that, actually, when I think about it. In my class, when I started when at seventh grade, well, seventh, when I was seven years old, uh, you know, there was actually two or three people from Finland and one from Austria, which we called war kids They were there, you know, in other words, they had left their country because of the war. Oh, right. And they were now growing up in Sweden.
0: Kind of asylum seekers or Uh, type of thing? Yeah,
1: I would say so. You know, in Ukraine, people have fled the country and now they live in Poland or Sweden for that matter, too. Mm. So we had a couple of those kids. And I don't know what happened to those, of course, because, you know, people move around and school this and that. And and, uh, so I don't know whether they stayed in there, but I remember quickly. Adele was the name of a girl from Austria.
0: Mm. Yeah. That's interesting, um, and you have uh, siblings as well, right? You have or I had two brothers, two brothers, two brothers. Okay, yeah, and I and one of them tragically passed. I'll so we'll talk about that, but I wanted to ask you this: in Sweden, so my, my heritage is all Norwegian, right? And I'm so, sorry to hear that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, we, man. We,
1: we tried to saw Norway off and let it float out into the ocean, but it wouldn't go. They should be fishing. you know. Not well, they, it's because the got Vikings oil.
0: just held on and they kept it there.
1: Yeah, you know? no, they got got oil now. They're just unbearable.
0: Oh, boy. All right. Yeah. Well, I was wondering if there's any... Um, I always found it fascinating the way the the naming was, right? Like my, my grandfather's name was Svenson. Yep. So it's Sven's son. Yeah. And uh, if you're a CrossFit fan, there's uh, Katrin, David's daughter, mm-hmm. the D-O-T-T-I-R, that's that's your daughter, right? That's like, your daughter. Um, it does Sweden have anything like that or no?
1: It's not common.
0: Okay. Not common. Okay.
1: This, I think you have to go back a few hundred years for that to be a common thing. Okay. You know, what have you. So, so it, it remains in some yeah. you know, families, you know, you keep it up going. Mm-hmm. But I, I've, in my world, so to speak, where I lived and where I knew people, never happened.
0: Yeah. Okay. Do you yeah. go back quite a bit to visit?
1: I used to go back once a year. But uh, not so much anymore.
0: Yeah. Neat to see that it doesn't change, huh? It's probably, is yeah. my guess. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, so one thing that I thought was interesting as I was kind of going through your story, they didn't allow you to race till you were 16. Not at all. Not at all. Um, why was that? And Well, you were supposed to have
1: a driver's license.
0: Uh, that was it. Because right? really, there was just, that was all there was, was street legal bikes that you guys would kind of modify into. Oh, yeah. There was yeah.
1: no cross bikes. Yeah. You know, the first one I recall, well, we had the Hus- Husqvarna bikes. Starting in 58, we had some pretty decent bikes. Not that I worked there at the time, but I was just a kid. But from 58 and on, there were factory bikes at Husqvarna. Oh, wow. You know, they worked. And you could buy a Greaves. Uh, CZs came in a few years later. I think you have to wait until 74 when the CZs mm. were, became good. You know, the twin pipes and all yeah. that stuff, they came first. And, um, from then on it grew, you know, the Spanish, we Montesa, USA, and nothing really from Italian, Italy at the time,
0: mm.
1: you know, but, uh, that was
0: what a neat time when all those countries, everybody was producing bikes, yeah, you know, now yeah. we're, we're kind of down to five or whatever it is. Yeah. But at the time it was just this country that bike would do really well. Then Mako, you know, Germany produces Makos. And then it was interesting.
1: What's fascinating is that after the war. There were a lot of German scientists. You now, some of them, of course, von Braun came over here to build rockets. Mm-hmm. But many of them stayed and started open consulting businesses all over Germany. And there was one by the name of Miller. And he actually designed some of the Husqvarna silver and cylinders with the chrome bars. Oh. And, you know, and we had actually had a cylinder that was special. We called the Miller Cylinder in, in Sweden. And, and they consulted with Uppsala, you know, in northern Sweden, with a company called Naimans that Thorsten Hallmann was actually a, you know an apprentice at mm. you know so there were a lot of these German consultants I suppose there were rocket scientists and I was just reading about the guy that did the two stroke you know Walter Madden, you know and and he for, for the MZ and it happened to land in the eastern side of the fence when the the border was secured after the war but the MZ factories were just fantastic people hmm. and he's the one that sort of the father of the two-stroke because he invented the ex- what we call the expansion chamber yeah. and, and how to make two strokes go and eventually he was sold sold to Suzuki long story uh, wow. a book written about it called speed for sale that you should look up that I'm reading as
0: we speak I will definitely yep. check that out that's yeah. that's fascinating so these yeah. were people during the war who were developing rockets and and military machines or yeah yeah, yeah.
2: okay
1: And a lot of the two-stroke engines came to to be developed as starter engines for aircraft and, you know, small, powerful little units that you could power something with, maybe a generator. So the the war was responsible for the two-stroke engine to be advanced in many stages, not its final stage, because that came later. You know, with Walter Cotton and uh, his rider, Enz Degner, and both of them eventually moved to Suzuki. Huh. You know, I, I'm sure you're aware of all that.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's fast. I didn't know that that uh, history from the war, yeah. though. It's crazy what comes out of that. You yeah. know, and MZ
1: was very, very good at enduros, six days. You know, that kind of stuff. They had their own team, and eventually, of course, that went into road racing, and that's where Degner was dominant, and eventually sold. Or took all the stuff with him and and escaped. He actually escaped out of the Eastern Zone and and fled into uh, Germany and eventually ended up at Suzuki in Japan. Wow! Yeah, fascinating, fascinating, fascinating
0: stuff. Did you do anything else as a boy uh, in terms of sports before you really got into bikes, or was it just really farming? <laughs> I mean,
1: yeah. Well, I mean, if you're a kid, PE in school is hockey and in the winter and soccer in the summer. Okay. And I don't know if you have much of a choice, but everybody does it. And those I, were the ones. You know? So I was a decent hockey player, yeah. you know, for our high school, you know, and I was not much of a soccer player, but but I did play. Yeah. Yeah, we had teams. Yes. Yeah.
0: Those were like, those were the two sports you absolutely did. Pretty much everybody. That's huh? it. Yeah. That's oh, that's it. fascinating. Yeah. Um, your dad, did he ride? No, no. Okay.
1: No, he passed away when I was seven. Yeah, you know, a uh, car accident? Or no, he was uh, actually a horse oh, rider. Oh, horse, and, that's uh, right.
0: He was a, okay. Yeah. Let's talk about your dad for a second. Um, Because tragic for a kid, and that's a terrible age to lose your dad. Mm-hmm. But he was an Olympic javelin thrower,
2: mm-hmm.
0: Uh, held a world record for a couple <laughs> of years, and then exactly. got into equestrian, yep. was very good in that, and, and had a bad accident that yep. ended up killing him. Yeah. Fascinating. Do you have a lot of memories of your dad? Or I very mean, seven, little, you're pretty young. Very
1: little. You know, because he was, of course, he was a consultant to other farms, so he traveled a lot, and and he, you know, came up, well, he didn't come up, with he uh, worked on new ideas and whatnot, so our, our little farm was the first to have some equipment you know, that they were trying out to see. Okay. And often at our farm, the buses came with other farmers from other areas to study. And I remember my father standing in front of these guys, one of those hats on, you know, the, the little brim on it. And he had a cane, you know, not because he needed it, but he is pointing out, you know, and here we do this and here we do that. And then there was some Q and A and we would, were able to sit on the side and see the stuff because the reason we're sitting there is, but at the end of this, they were free soda pop,
0: huh. uh, <laughs> <Your> <laughs> so that's where soda. we came in. Yeah, fast. What did you guys grow on your farm? Oh, it
1: was all about uh, dairy, so that was mm. all about alfalfa okay. and things for the for the farm for the animals. Mm. You know, for the for the winter.
0: Gotcha. Um, so, how did you get introduced to bikes? You're, what's your, what was your first experience? See, I think I read something about you heard a bike or saw a bike go by. Oh yeah. Tell me that story.
1: <laughs> well, so after my father passed away, we had a contract to co- come in to run the farm itself, you mm-hmm. know, because it was our mom and, you know, three
0: kids. Were you the oldest brother? I was the oldest, yeah. Okay. So and you're not old enough to take over? And uh, no, no. Even no, back I, then? Well, a little. We'll teal. come
1: to that in a minute. Okay. Yeah, but for, for this, so we had, you know, a, a contract mm-hmm. to come in. And he had a son that was a little bit older than I was, 10, 10 years older. And he bought a bike. He had a Royal Enfield 350 uh-huh. that he okay. bought. And I you know at at school, you had a bicycle to school, of course, because there was no school buses. So on my way home, we had a big hill at the end. So I'm kind of pushing my bike up this hill. And here comes this guy with a Royal Enfield 350. Yeah. First time I see it. And he obviously, when he sees me, he's going to show off. So he guns that thing and goes up the hill. And I was looking at this bike going by, and I was just completely blown away. And at, from the tire, there was actually a little bit of roost coming out. And he's throwing some little stones out <laughs> from the back. And I'm going, wow, you know, that's something I want to do, yeah. you know. So that was my first impression, my first image of anything that was different. And than,
0: it really stuck with you, it stuck with like. me. I still yeah. remember it. That's crazy.
1: And I can go to this place today within six feet and tell you exactly where it was.
0: How cool is He'll that? It's probably there. unchanged out there. Unchanged, Yeah, completely. Um, what what kind of racing or motorcycle competition, was it just trials and scrambles at the time? Or what What even was there?
1: Well, everything is done through clubs in, in, in Europe at the time. So the clubs have members, you know, you've got to join and be a member, and then you can join their races and their events. And you actually, actually of course, be a worker, you know, on Saturday to prepare the track. So there were some trials, there were some enduros, and there were motocross. Which oh, is mo- actually, there was motocross around there. Okay. There was, yeah, And that's what I wanted to, to uh, go, to go to. But in order to go to, as, there were not that, that many races, and you had to enter by mail before you go to a race and right. get a letter back saying, ah, you have been accepted to this event in the junior class, and your number will be twenty-two. So you had to put it changed every week too. So that's why you see all this. Number plates from those days, hand painted, you know, yeah. because you 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 you're given a number for each event, huh. you know. So that's Interesting. how it works. So yeah, that's what I did.
0: Um, and then I, I thought this. I find this fascinating, and um, I think it's there's there's good to it. But you guys had a mandatory military time. Mm-hmm. How old is this post high school? So you're eighteen.
1: Yep. Yep. This one starts. Okay. And if you were in, if you were in in. Uh, in college, you can get it deferred a few years, okay. but you never really escape from it. You really, you always have to do it.
0: Okay. Well, I guess then that comes a little later. So before that, tell me about your first race. Uh, you turned 16, and I'm got sure a license. I'm sure you're chomping at the, the same day. All right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah. The first race that happened to come up was a trials race. Okay. You know, but I didn't care. I so you're that, just looking any I kind was, of motorcycle, anything race. I can do with my bike. You know. So I which w- was what, by the way, Silverfield. Huh? Okay. Yeah. yeah. That's how all of the Swedes started. Well, not exactly true, because Monarch, which was our arch-competitor mm-hmm. at the time, they had another another bike, you know, that sort of faded away eventually. And the reason for that was that they didn't have their own engine. They had to buy an engine out of Germany. Mm-hmm. There were a lot of engine makers in Germany after the war. Now we're back, right? Yep. You know, Sox and RD and, and DKW and, and I, probably five or six or seven of them, ILO, you know, that made engines. Because that's their expertise yeah. come, coming out of the war. You know, so that's what they did. And the monarch engine was called Ardy, and it was a good little engine, but it needed development and they had no control over it. You know, so my one of my sayings that I have carried with me through the years, you cannot be a successful mm. motorcycle manufacturer mm. unless you control mm. your own engine. Mm. Look at Greece, you know, it was a great great people. Yeah, but you're had, at a huge they were, disadvantage if they were you stuck with the engine. Yeah, you know, they could. They should have done their own engine, which of course is not easy.
0: Yeah. So how was the Silverpilen?
1: Was the we'll come to that eventually. But the the strength of it was that it was light. Hmm. It was built to a formula that described lightweight motorcycles in Sweden. If it was only seventy five kilo, which I think is like one sixty eight pounds, you were lightweight and you could ride it when you were sixteen. Hmm. If it was higher, heavier than that. You had to be 18 to ride. it not have a, another license. Okay. You know, license and license. You had gotcha. to. Yeah. So that's government for you. But that, <laughs> that's what they did. You know. So, but we'll come back to that later. That particular fact that the bike was built to a to a standard of 75 kilo turned out to be an advantage to us all the way up through the years, starting ending in 71 and we'll come to that why 71 going into 72 okay it's important okay we'll get there
0: okay so um you do this trials race Mm -hmm. i mean that wasn't your kind of what you really wanted to do but did you still just love it or what what do you remember i mean
1: anything riding your bike you know that was what you wanted to do and competition and painting your number on the side of the bike you know was actually what you wanted to do you know and now you're a big dude, you think, you know, yeah. even though you're telling all your friends, 16, you're a, you're a motorcycle
0: racer, all that. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so what, do you remember a lot from that event? You remember everything about it? I
1: remember where it was. I remember some of the sections we rode on the bike, but I can't recall how I finished. Yeah. Okay. You know, how many points I had or, or didn't have and that kind of stuff. A
0: couple dabs along the way, I'm sure. Oh, I'm sure they were. <laughs> <laughs> so what came, you know, then did you, did you finally get into some motocross and the scrambles sorry.
1: and exactly and as soon as i finished high school uh, you know i wanted to work with bikes to learn how to do it and there was one shop in town that had you know they worked on motorcycles it's a small town right so this one shop and i befriended the guy that actually owned it and he became my mentor and i eventually worked there you know he taught me I, he was my mentor in that taught me how to use tools and mm-hmm. how to weld and you know how to keep yourself organized great guy you know miss Bengt Kling okay and Bengt Kling was my men, my first mentor you know and, and he taught me uh,
0: engine building too and things like that or
1: to some extent okay. we worked mainly on chainsaws as far as numbers of units we worked on chainsaws was the number one item Husqvarna of course of course uh, of course because that's all there was at the time <laughs> yeah and and uh, but eventually, you know, a lot of motorcycle stuff. We had some old four-strokes, some BSA's, Gold Stars, that kind of stuff. But okay. I never really took to that much because I it was, to me, already old, and I was into the new two-strokes and lightweights yeah. and that kind of kind of stuff. Yeah,
0: yeah. It's interesting that four-strokes back then were like, ah, that's old technology. This two-strokes yeah, is I, the I new was cool.
1: Just stuff. at the verge of you know when you know from the AJS and the Litos and you know and yeah. the Husqvarna four-strokes. We're giving away to the two strokes. And I never got into that. I never com- competed on the four stroke at that time.
0: A uh, little sidebar here. I'm jumping way out of chronological order, but do you find it interesting that we're now back to four strokes? Because the two stroke, when you when you break it down, it's like it's lighter. You can get more horsepower out of half the cc's. Like It, it just seems like such a simpler and better design. But because of environmental or whatever the reasons, we're back to four strokes again. Good and bad. I don't know. What, what's your take on it? It's just so so interesting to me how we've gone back and forth. And will we go back again? Maybe uh, one.
1: Day. I'm really divided. You know, because what you stated is true. You yeah. know, lightweight and, and uh, easy to maintain and cheaper to buy and all. I suppose the four-stroke could run a little bit longer before it needs. But then again, you know, re- doing an overhaul on the four-stroke mm-hmm. is nothing you do yourself in the basement. And know, expensive. And expensive. Yeah. So the, it's a real dilemma. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm... I understand both sides. I really haven't taken a position, no, stance. no yeah. stand on. You know, we ought to go this way. Or we ought to, maybe what we could do is to keep the 125s, two strokes. You know, as a beginner class and
0: <sighs> man after and my own know, heart. Moved up. That's yeah. exactly what I think. I think yeah. that's such a great bike to learn. All right. Uh, and I tell this story all the time. My cousin wanted to get into riding. Right. He was going to buy a 250F used, and I said yeah man you you screw something up and blow that up you're, you're done you, you might as well just give the bike away yeah i said buy a yamaha 125 there is a million parts for them everywhere they're very simple yeah well he screwed up the filter putting it on right like after having it a month maybe he did fil- there something was off and it sucked a bunch of dirt and blew up and if i'm like if this was a 250f you'd be out right. you're not going to find thousands of dollars i mean he was that's right mowing lawns to pay for the stuff basically yep. and uh, we, we got him a new piston, a ring and, you know, got him back going again, pretty, no. pretty cheaply. So I, I like what you're saying. I, I think that that's, uh, absolutely mm-hmm. accurate. So did you know at this time, I want to do something with engines, like building engines. You you had a very, um, you had a, a, a not, wanted to learn more about engine building and mechanics and things like that in general, it seemed like, or were you still thinking, I want to be a racer? Right as you kind of well, the, in high the
1: racer part never disappeared. Yeah, it was always there. Yeah, but I think the means to get there was not so much through engines, because that was a little bit beyond what I could comprehend mm-hmm. at the time as a kid. But suspension I could appreciate mm-hmm. and understand. So I, in as an apprentice at this shop, we built front and rear suspension for the Silver pillin that I had and converted it, you know, with, with the right uh, linkage forks and the Girling shocks and all that stuff. Okay. And, and uh, we that shop I worked for and Mr. Kling, he became quite famous in the neighborhood for converting bikes to better suspensions. We never did much with engine. We did a little and he did a little. And we built expansion chambers because literally the first time we had one, the guy at Husqvarna, his name was Jauren. Mr. Jauren actually drew us literally on a napkin. You know, you ought to build it like this and order to expand and, you know, you had the end of it. And then you have a tailpipe and that kind of stuff. Mm. So that's the first thing we And that information came right out of East Germany and, you know, Walter Caden, who was the MZ guy and whatnot. So, so. And that's time, a
0: building an expansion shaver. There's a science to that. Oh, yeah. Uh, I've watched Mitch at Pro Circuit back in the early 90s mm-hmm. building cone pipes. And I'm just like, yeah wow how yeah. do you know how do you you know and he well you know, he'd try explain it to me and yeah. I'm like it's way I over I suppose my there
1: could be mathematical formulas but when it comes down to the end of it it's all about whatever you do as far as building and trying you know I mean if you went to a lab that did two strokes you'll see exhaust pipes hanging I'm sure Mitch had the same thing oh, oh yeah right yeah, so.
0: <laughs> yeah a lot of it was just trial and error yeah they'd spend it all day uh it was a gentleman do you remember Mike Hooker
1: i know the name but no
0: person. he's building all of toyota's uh, engines for nascar now i mean oh, that's okay. how far he went but he was mitch's main guy right and he would spend all day building a cone pipe he'd yeah. be so excited he'd come running up with it you oh i can't wait to try this Is it? and it would be terrible and yeah. i'm like hook it's not good yeah. he's like oh yeah. you know
1: and you know bottom end torque versus top end you know and yeah. mid mid complicated
0: uh, yeah very yeah so uh, how how long after you graduated high school uh, did you have to go into your military time? And pretty much right away.
1: No, I had actually uh, a wait of two years. Oh, right. So I went in there. Okay. But I did, uh, and here's another good story because in my little city there was actually a, a regiment. Do you call it that? You know, uh, army fort. Yep. Yep. You know. And I, of course, I knew most of the people there, the officers and whatnot, because as I grew up, the officers' kids went to the same school I did. Right. So we were often at other people's homes, you know, and, and what have you had the Saturday night parties and that kind of stuff mm. at the houses. So I got to know most of the officers, okay. the higher ranked people too. Okay. So when I came, you know, so when I came to registering, you know, for being drafted, I requested to be at that place, you know, at home. Mm. And I could almost see my home from the, where I was, you know, and, in, and, in, on the on the regiment there, that's
0: so, best case scenario. Best case scenario. So <laughs> if
1: food wasn't any good, I would actually go home have lunch at home. Oh really? Yeah, that happened a few times, not many, yeah. but I could do that. So, you know. But and also I applied to be a motorcycle uh, rider. You know, within within there they had you know, we had motorbikes. Uh, Swedish army did, did and did it here too in America. But it's kind of faded away too. Mm-hmm. Too dangerous, I guess, and and whatnot. But I actually rode a Jawa two fifty for the entire 10 months there, you know, and, mm-hmm. and uh, had a good time.
0: That's great. So the two years you waited to get enlisted, then you were just working with banks mm-hmm. and working at his shop? Racing. Yeah. And racing. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. And were you, how were you doing locally racing? Uh, had you gone like to the expert class or where did you get to?
1: We had to, same as I suppose most ever, we had to graduate through, yeah. gather some, you know, enough points. And, and I can't recall exactly when time was it was, but I had enough points and I moved up. And I remember thinking, well, you know, when I was in junior class and you look at the list of people that are lining up, I can beat that guy, I can beat that guy, I can beat that guy. You can beat everybody, right? But yeah. then you look at the starting list of the expert class, it was called cool after Thomas. I,
0: I can't beat him. I can't, I can't beat be- <laughs> anyone.
1: <laughs> of these guys, you know. Yeah, yeah. So you kind of have a reset in your mind, and you figured, you know, I'll I'll start from the back and try to pass a few people. Yeah, you know, so it, it took a little while, but I eventually won a race or two. Yeah, yeah,
0: and that's a fun. I mean, everyone can relate to that, right? I mean, that's yeah. we've all gone through that, starting yeah. at the bottom and and kind of inching your way towards the front, and then, okay, now I'm the best here, or I'm one of them, exactly. and then you step up and you go, oh, yeah, here we are again. Yeah. Um, yeah.
1: But what happened here? Now we. I'll, I'll lead a little bit here, but okay, because the, the the farm was of course run by the the contractor, and eventually it since so I was still
0: the, owned by your mother,
1: my mother, yeah, and the family. But
0: the government would come in. Was it a government entity? Ah, no, it was just oh, a, okay.
1: a, a, rec, a regular, contracted guy that came okay. in to okay. be uh, you know run the farm and had his own machinery and had his own animals and whatnot, and it was a family, you know, and uh, and. Um, that was expected that i would eventually be running the farm i suppose yeah, yeah. i would assume that's kind of just you just go into your, your father's and the same friend. thing with it with a friend i had next door in a farm next door and you know so he was going to go through farm school and he said you know you really ought to give that some thought and my mother encouraged it also mm-hmm. so they encouraged me to go to farm school so i did and it happened to be not far from muscovarna itself you know, my, my farm wasn't that far from Husqvarna either, but this was even closer, right? Okay. So uh, one day, I, and I'm riding my bike, you know, and, and have trying to be good, <clears throat> going to farm school. So I figured, you know, I'm going to go to Husqvarna and see if I can get a job. So I go there, and I bang on the door, and I knew a couple of people there from meeting him at the races. So I met this one guy, Mr. Hellman, chief engineer. I said, you know what? I really like to... He said, nah. He says, No. Nah. We don't hire any mechan- any writers or any anybody else, but we hire engineers. We don't have to hire mechanics, hmm. so we hire engineers. I figured, huh? So it didn't take many days until I'm actually researching engineering schools, right? And this is in the summer of '62, something like that. Okay. You know, so I, I f- got in as the last place on, on an engineering school that fall. Okay. You know, and because they had a cancellation. And so I went through, I gave up on farming school and I went through engineering. Now, was was your mom
0: bummed about that? I I just, was there like an expectation? I'm sure that you would do that. Yeah. Was she disappointed or was she like, hey, what, you know, make your own path?
1: You know, there was a time there when my mom was kind of against riding bikes and, you know, I didn't think I needed to hide it or anything like that, but she wasn't really supportive. But at the end, when she realized that I kind of knew what I was doing a little bit, she was supportive, you okay. know, and and so that that changed, you know, and and whatnot. So, you know, I'm going through engineering school and two and a half years
0: and. Oh, so it's a full two and a half year program. Yeah, exactly. Okay, wow. Yeah,
1: and and uh, and so I'm I'm graduating and I'm running literally running back to Husqvarna, and I'm banging on the door saying I'm here, I'm an engineer, hire me, and they go. I don't think we remember you very well. (laughs) Have you been here before? (laughs) I said, yeah, don't you know? So anyway, after some talking, I got to be the test rider on the new Army bike. They had a new Army 250, old green bike that needed to be put miles on every day. So I had to do about uh, 200 kilometers, 120 miles or so a day on this bike, what have you. So I did that. for
0: Just dirt road, where would you go? I could
1: go anywhere I wanted as huh. so long as I put two hundred miles on it, you huh. know, or two hundred kilometers on yeah, it. Yeah. yeah, So at the time, I used to ride down to Rolf Tibblin's place. See, at the time, he lived in southern Sweden. It was about a hundred kilometers there.
0: So, and how would you know Rolf? Just from racing? For
1: some racing. Okay. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Because you know, we hang out. That gives me some thought to the where I did you did met meet Rolf the first time. Nevertheless, he's down there. He had his careers finished. He's thinking about starting a, a restaurant and a hotel business in southern Sweden. Okay. So I went down there, you know, and we have lunch and occasionally say, hey, we're going to go stretching. We're working out. So was, come on here. You know. So, uh, you know, I reluctantly would join him, you know, yeah. in some workout there. But
0: yeah.
1: put all my stuff back on, get on my bike and drive back home.
0: Yeah.
1: Skis on in the winter and the whole thing. Yeah.
0: Fun job. Fun I job.
1: Mean, and it said, you know, I remember you telling me this says you don't think this really helps you as far as your racing goes. It says anything you do on two wheels will help you. And even if it's just street riding, you know, you get the balance and yeah. you get, you know, the reflection of be reflective of this and that. So yeah. I took a word for it and I rode that bike every day.
0: <laughs> rode everywhere. Yeah. Um so then this you you obviously delayed your military time quite a bit, or was this after military?
1: That was after military.
0: Oh after military, okay. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha yep. um so was there anything you took away from that military time that you think helped you down the road I, I find it's you know to me we don't we obviously don't do that here, but I know, like David Villeman, he had to go into the French military right. for a year, and um it was a little bit different as a high level athlete he he was given some benefits that maybe others weren't, but mm-hmm. I think it gives you a a a good foundation of structure and discipline that maybe as young kids, you know none of us are really. Very few of us are born with that, right? That has to be something that's developed. Anything like that come out of that for you? Oh, absolutely. Yeah.
1: Oh, yeah. To be organized and to be on time and to, to learn, understand the uh, the repercussions if you weren't. Hmm. You know, yeah, what have you? So I, I learned quite a bit on that. And also you learn... Other kids, you know, how they come and the approach they have and, and the background they have. Mm. And you're thinking, you know, how can this guy even survive, you know, because he has no understanding what's going on. Mm. He doesn't do this. And then again, there's other people that are very organized and you're saying, well, I want to be like that yeah. guy, right? Yeah. So you have certain,
0: you know. So at what point, um, you lost your mom and your brother in a car accident. Mm-hmm. Uh, how old were you? Is this post-co- post-college?
1: Yes, post-college.
0: I mean, this is a lot of tragedy I mean, nothing, for, yeah. a, a for a seven-year-old and then now early 20s. Yeah. Um, yeah. That affect you or what? Jeez.
1: At the time, it was very confusing, you know, because I had lost any guidance. And in particular, I don't want to say my mom was just a mom. She mom my mom was good, and but she was leading the the, the, uh, the house, so to speak. Whatever. Yeah. But my dad, who had lost a lot earlier, it turns out later he was a really an organizer. You know, he was a guy that would lead. He would have been part of maybe city, you know, um, management that kind of yep. stuff. He had all kinds of credentials. He had done, and and uh, and uh, I would have learned a lot from him. Yeah. At the same time, if that he had stayed alive, I wouldn't be in motorbikes.
0: You'd have definitely gone into farming. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And and horses and mm. that kind of stuff. So. You reflect on that kind of stuff now and you say, what would have happened? You know, hmm. as you go through life, there's what I call life intersections. Yeah. You go and up and here you are, you go this way or you go that way. And there's really no way back. Once you've decided you've got to carry on, you know, because the other things cut off hmm. and whatever. So, And one of those happened as an apprentice at school. I was working at a gas station and, and uh, you know, pumping gas, because at the time, nobody pumped their own gas, you know, and the guy that owned the station, his name was Emil, and Emil fell, it was uh, cold in winter, he fell on the ice where they had been washing cars and driving him outside, and broke his knee, Hmm. and he ended up in the hospital, you know, and and he's like, and then of course, me and another guy, we were trying to take over and run the thing, as we should. But at some point, we were out of gas, literally. I mean, there was nothing left, so we, we have to go up to the guy in the hospital and say, how do you, what do you do? You know, he says, oh, my gosh, you're going to take the money here, and they're mostly cash, right? Yeah. You know, and you buy, deposit it here, and then they will deliver. So we learned how to run a gas station. And after a week or two of that, I'm up there saying, you know, now we need to do so-and-so. He says, you know what, he says, I'm ready to give up this gas station stuff. He says, do you want to take it over? You want to be, you know, I'll sell it all, all the inventory or whatnot to you. And that was my first life. That was the split in the road. Intersection. section, yeah. I said, should I do that? Should I go? So of course, I said, you know, I'm a motor boy. I want to go ride my bike. I don't want to own a gas station. So that was my first decision mm. in, in real life.
0: But you were giving it some very real consideration. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, how would that have been yeah. you'd have been just a gas station owner never yeah. Yeah. you know
1: yeah maybe you done something else and you know you know but anyway yeah those are
0: fascinating right fascinating when you look stuff. back and go man what would my life have done if i'd done that yeah exactly interesting so yeah i just i can't imagine losing my both parents and my sibling uh in these tragedies at such a young age um I just can't imagine it yeah. so but you found a way to you know carry on and kind of have a find a way to look back and find a silver lining it seems like you know it, it, it brought out, you into uh, something that you love that you would have otherwise not that's right you know. yeah. Hmm.
1: yeah It's it was a confusing time I have to I can tell you that
0: I'm sure you know geez. Um
1: but I didn't get arrested you know I didn't have any brushes with the law which is easy to do right at that kind of time With no
0: father was your mom pretty strict did she uh yeah she probably had to take over basically yeah. take on both roles but so.
1: my mentor bank Kling, mm. he was the guy that that infl- you know gave me values and you need to do this you need to understand this and this is how it works you know so he was the one actually that that really got, gave me some goals in life and and a direction to go and mm. things to learn you know and and what friends to avoid, yeah, and which
0: friends to stick he with. He became a father figure for he you, did. that's great. He did so. You started uh testing these bikes with Kate with Escovarna, and um, at what what was kind of the next step for you there? Well, I didn't were, were you still racing like oh, yeah. weekends Oh, yeah.
1: absolutely, yeah. Okay. on my own stuff, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, this is 65 66, 65 okay. going into 66, and at the time. We are selling bikes. Husq- Husqvarna is selling bikes. We started; they started in '63 with okay. 100 bikes, which you know was very, very good because they were so light and they were quite powerful, mm-hmm. and, and not as powerful as some other bikes were, but they, uh, the light made, the weight made up for it, yeah. right? And that's something we reflect on even to this day. You know, what is the value of certain parameters? You know, weight and rotating this and that. Yeah. So the bike was very good. And Edison I comes there in 66, right? Sure. And, and there had been a lot of people coming to Husqvarna, right? I've seen letters written to Husqvarna from people in America saying, you know, I want to be the importer of Husqvarna to America. And they would always write back a very, you know, a polite letter saying, under the da, 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 you know, in English, you know, and there would be three letters, three copies with a, you know, what do you call a carbon paper in between, yep. so, I mean, no computer stuff, right? No, no, no. You know, and I saw somebody saying, you put a little stamp on it at, at the, at the tor- corner saying, here's so how it's going to be filed, and it said, you know, we are very pleased to get your inquiry about the moment we're not able to, why would we sell, they didn't say that, but the, the idea was, why would we sell bikes to a country where there's, we have motocross bikes, why would we sell bikes to a country where there's no motocross? Hmm. So they said, you know, this is Silly, you know. Hmm. You know. So, Edison and I had a different idea. And all these other people that had written before and got it in negative, Edison and I got I'm sure he got it in that letter, too. But he took the bull by the horn. He traveled there. He went there. He says, you know, I want to talk. And he said, you know, finally, he convinced two of the export people, saying, if I send you money for two bikes, will you sell them to me? And there they are, saying, yeah, I guess. You know, what the hell are we going to do? And that broke the ice. Because so he sent money for two bikes they were sent over in i think in jan feb of 70 of 66 okay you know and we still have records of that somewhere you know uh, the bikes came in and what one, a cool
0: piece of paper if you could find that exactly
1: huh? well you know i don't have it but um, right. you know don insia that sells and has the records like that he probably has some and you know one bike went to malcolm smith and the other bike was kept as a shop bike and they used it to loan it loan it out to various people in San Diego. Billy Silverthorn was one of the early ones that got to ride it. Okay. Malcolm had his own bike and of course his story about how he got to on the bike is actually current today because the AMA magazine, there are stories in there, you know, that are actually written from his book. And his book, Malcolm's book, is fascinating. Mm. Well, I fascinating.
0: To look at it. Wow. So is that the that's not the bike he was famous for riding in Baja? Uh, this oh, was, that, that came that came that came later. much later, yeah, right? But, but. Um, so you were still racing at the time, though. And and I read where you were traveling to like New Zealand. You're you kind of traveling all around, including here in the U.S. Yep. Um, so while you're doing that work at Husky, you're still you're still actively racing. Right? Were you was there Grand prix at the time?
1: No. Well, here's what happened. So in '67. You know, there's a guy in, in, in New Zealand by the name of Tim Gibbs. And he had been racing in Europe, and he had raced Grand Prix, and he was a very good okay. rider. Now he retired, moved back to New Zealand. But he wanted to see, you know, some of the Euro people coming. So every year, he invited two or three Euros to come there and ride. And it would be part of the they call the Rothmans International Circus or something like that. Okay. You know, so long story short, I was invited. And and, uh, and uh, two Americans were invited. My, one other named Bud Eakins. You know oh, Bud Eakins, right? Oh, yeah. The movie yeah. guy, you know? And another uh, and another guy from England by the name of John Lewis, who's a very, very good writer, but okay. whom I've never seen since. Okay. But anyway, so I get a f- ticket, you know, and, and I'm getting... And this,
0: plane. traveling to New Zealand at the time, like how exotic, right? I mean... My
1: first time on a big airplane. Yeah. Know? Yeah. And it was a 34-hour plane ride you know through london and and um, singapore and all that kind of stuff oh, man. you know and i get there and we shipped the bike through husqvarna you know and i built a big crate for it send it down by boat
0: months know. and months ahead of time probably. oh yeah,
1: yeah months ahead of it and and um do you have time for this whole story yeah no i love New Zealand it it's is interesting because when i
0: i went and did a race in yeah. uh taupo yeah where ben townley is from i mean What a beautiful country. I'm blown away at how amazing it was. So that's why I wanted to ask about it. So we get
1: there, you know, and this is before security at airports, you know. There's all these people from the club with their club jerseys on, standing at the bottom of the stairs off the airplane, you know, and I get off the airplane with my a shirt on, and they go, ah! So the first thing they do, they take you to the local pub. To yeah. drink beer, right? Yeah. Yeah, so we did. And they're trying to tell me, you know, well, tomorrow we're going to meet here again because there's going to be a guy from from America coming. I said, who was that? Well, they said, we had, in, we had initially invited Bud Eakins. But he, of course, something happened. He's got to do some movie something. So Bud had actually, which I learned later, asked around saying, who is the best writer in, around here these days? And people saying, Jay and Roberts. So he said, oh, call him up, to say, Jan, you want to go to, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So they sent, so he said, I got to send him a bike. So he brought a brand new Husqvarna 360. They emptied the oil out f- and fuel out. And he laid it flat on a pallet, literally on a pallet, and strapped it to a pallet. And, and it,
0: it up and sent and it? And
1: sent it air freight to New Zealand. And I was there when he came, so I know well, this is true. Yeah. And we actually unzipped it and took it off, you know, the pallet. and. But no parts, no nothing. because I had a lot of parts Gosh. in my box, right? Yeah. So Jane and I became good friends, and he became one of my mentors in English. You know, so he would teach me, and I, I
0: had no idea. Little, How was your English at the time?
1: A little school English, but okay. uh, you know, what we call it, motocross English. Gotcha. You know, you, you know the right words for for you know having a big crash and that kind yeah. of that stuff. But <laughs> but he became my mentor, and, and one of the things where we're we're driving, we're listening to a song called. Big Bad John and Big Bad John. I don't know if you heard about it. He's a big dude. He's in the mine with his fellows, and the mine is starting to cave in, and he is the big guy, and he stands there and holds the mine up, you know, so that his all his fellows can escape, okay. and he's Big Bad John, you know, and he he's in there, you know, and the, that's the mine is collapsing, you know, he yeah. doesn't make it out, you know, and and you know, so John Jan is saying, you know, Gunner. He's dead. That means he's dead. <laughs> you know, and I'm going okay. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the end of the line for Big Bad John. Yeah. And that JN taught me. That means he's dead. Yeah. So one of the first things I learned.
0: That was your first one of your best, first English lessons.
1: Well, I mean, a little yeah. more refined. Yeah, yeah, than, yeah. yeah.
0: You know. Well, Jay, he was an off-road legend here, right? Mm-hmm. He was Baja and a lot of uh, we big We was at the time desert. Desert, you know, and yeah. he had
1: just done the Bar One Thousand. I think the second one ever run it was done that fall of '67. If I'm not
0: mm. incorrect, it's just so fast. I know it's we're a pretty small sport, but his son Jimmy yeah. is one of the main stunt coordinators in Hollywood now. Oh, yeah. Got me into a couple of movies that I've done: Supercross, the movie, there you very big uh, yeah, yeah. feature film. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but he's still, you know, he works with Dave Castillo and, yeah, yeah, uh, and, and,
2: uh, all, and Dick, all of those guys now, and, and Dick
0: brought Miller them son. in.
1: Yeah, 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 him yeah, yeah, yeah. well.
0: Interesting small world. Yeah. So anyway, I keep going anyway. with this story down there. Anyway,
1: so, you know, I did all the races there, and we became good friends. And how showed... long,
0: like a week no, or so, or how long? No, no, no,
1: it was four months. Oh. We started in um, October of 67. Of we did a few races in, in uh, Australia, and then we took the boat over mm-hmm. to New Zealand, and we did the races there in January and February. Mm-hmm. And in March, we traveled back, you know, and I... And J.M. said, yeah, you're going to come with me, you know, because I'd traveled the other way to get to New Zealand. Now I'm going this way, and we stopped in Hawaii for a day. Been know, around the just, world. It's just to go to the beach, exactly, <laughs> you know, and came back here, and we did a few races, and we did the Mint 400 together and won it, you know, in, in March or uh, late March, I think, of of 68.
0: Wow, and that race still goes. It just happened, I think.
1: Yeah, yeah, maybe it does. It's changed now, it, of course.
0: Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, I suppose. Yeah, you know, so." Yep. That's crazy! What mm-hmm. a what a neat and so was the, the concept of that trip? Were they trying to introduce motorcycle racing more down there? Is that why they were bringing people down, or was it just entertainment for them?
1: Probably a little bit of both. A little bit of both, because okay. you know they they had some international riders there that had a name that could draw some more people in. Sure, and you know we had a lot of local riders that were really good. You know, they wanted to build, you know, a, a career out of it, but yeah. they didn't know how they would compare to international writers. Yeah. So they used that used that as a judge. Yeah, benchmark. A right? Benchmark, that's the word, yeah.
0: What What did you think of New Zealand and Australia um, versus Europe and, you know, where you grew up? Was it well, just a completely well, different world at the time? Or? No, in Australia and
1: New Zealand are very different. Yes. You know, Australia is more commercialized, you know, mm-hmm. it's all business and big city and that kind of stuff. New Zealand is more farming and, and uh, uh, sheep and hillsides and that kind of stuff. Of course, they have industry as well.
0: I think they say that's the land where the men are men and where sheep are scared. I think that was the... No <laughs> that's probably...
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> the the um, you know a lot of things happened in New Zealand because, you know, we had... The bikes were getting to be a little worn out and, hmm. you know, we, we got hurt a little bit and we had to travel around and, you know, and... and uh, uh, yeah Jan learned a lot because we i took upon me to teach him how to ride motocross you know because he was a straightforward right. guy you know so we we actually had a riverbed where we stayed close to and we made a figure eights you know and then we taught about how to just lay down and you drag the handlebars in the dirt that kind of stuff yeah you know, big big berms and stuff that he had never done so
0: yeah yeah oh that's super yeah. cool yeah um how much did Rolf Tiblin, Torsten Hallman. How? What kind of an impact did they have on you? I mean, you guys were friends, but did you, did they ever coach you, teach you, work with you, or, well, how, what kind of impact did they have on you as a young rider?
1: Now, Rolf raised in Europe. You know, he was a big guy. In '64, I had broken my foot. You know, with the metatarsals in my foot, so I was in a cast, and I actually got to got to know Rolf that way because we traveled together in Europe. I was, you know, in the cast, so I, I was driving his okay. car, you know, and he was sleeping in the back seat, you know, and that kind of stuff. Yeah. So we traveled together, and he introduced me to the Czechish people in, in Czechia, and, you know, with CZ, that kind of stuff. So that's, I spent quite a bit of time with Rolf there, you know, and then, of course, when I was riding my Haskovar army bike and to visit him, <laughs> yeah. you know, that's, that's how we got to know each other. And then later on, when he came to America to have his training center, you know, I worked for Haskovar still then, so we got together, to, you know, so our fr- our families were pretty close at the time, and I know his family very well, you know. So.
0: Yeah, yeah. Did you work with him at that training center here? Yeah, well,
1: okay. we worked at the same company for the same okay same with the same goal, but we didn't sure. physically do much okay. work together. Not the same. Yeah.
0: Okay, okay. Uh, but did you were they sort of idols to you? Like, did you look up to them as as sort of heroes to you, or more friends? You guys were just more friends.
1: Um. Probably a little bit of both, yeah. you know, because he, of course, was a world champion and I was never close to that. Right. You right. know, I was more of an engineer type guy that worked on technical stuff and then wrote it myself to validate whether it worked or not. Hmm. But but Rolf, you know, he was a champion and he had, you know, a lot of experience in physical. He was probably the first guy that fit, were physical training strength, you know, and, and uh, endurance were important to him. Mm. You know, everybody else, we skied a little bit and we did, you know, running in the snow or whatnot, you know, but Rolf actually had a program put together. He actually Mm. did things methodically, you know, Mm. and we eventually learned from that. And and that's look at what that's gotten us to now. Sure.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, You also had a relationship with Heike Mikola. Yeah. 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 I don't know. I've never met him, uh, but he terrifies me. Just looking at photos of this guy. I don't know. He just looks mean was he i mean what, what how would you describe him what do you what can you tell me about oh
1: him? he was a friendly guy really yeah
0: he doesn't look like I it know, but it looks like his beard's <laughs> gonna jump off his face and punch me i just he scares me. but he
1: was dead serious about what he was doing hmm. you know and and the first time i saw him was him and uh and uh kalvi came to oscarina in the spring of 66 maybe Okay. Must have been to pick up their bikes because they were on their way from Finland through Sweden down to Europe to start, you know, because it was still winter yep. up there and then down in southern Belgium, Holland, even in France, they were much warmer. Sure. Right? And yeah. Certainly not summer yet.
0: But, yeah, not not uh, Southern California yeah. warm, but.
1: But at the time he came there, he spoke virtually no English, no Swedish for that matter, but he spoke Finnish, okay. You know, which is a very different language.
0: Okay, I was going to ask. So there, it's you a, know. It's, it's like is, portuguese and spanish almost just very different no,
1: it's a slavic language it's mm. more like hungarian apparently mm. and and uh bulgaria i don't know about hungarian so a lot of finns feel you know with f formula one and all when there's the hungarian grand prix there's a lot of Finns coming down there because they can they recognize the language and gotcha. they get, get by easily interesting but finn but he eventually had to learn english mm. you know and and uh and, uh, and he did, his English is still not very good, you know, <laughs> but we used a lot of fun stuff. And, and uh, I worked you know, on, on testing for, for quite some time, Okay. you know, and we were working on the bike. And uh, that's eventually, he was the one that actually encouraged me to do the Gunner Gasser eventually.
0: Oh, is that right? Yeah, because okay.
1: he, he would, the bike I was at the time was long, you know, uh, forks long, uh, uh, rake. Yep. And he would go across the corners and he would fall down and bend the cable, throw mm. a cable. So I figured something has got to be done about this. So as we tested with Aki, I decided I would do that eventually when I had time mm. to do it. And that took years to yeah. to get to. But eventually he was the sort of the, the, uh, the got me started on thinking about right. that. Yeah.
0: Was he, a, was he a nice guy then? I mean, like, uh, how was he with fans? Now he was, was kind of quiet and to himself a little you bit.
1: You know, here's here's a good distinction okay. between Torsten and uh, Roger. There was one group that were outgoing, they understood that fan appreciation, having good relationships with fans and whatnot, was important. Yeah. Auburg and Mikolai were not that. that okay. They were enclosed, they were introvert. Both mm-hmm. of them were, especially Auburg. And, and, um, and eventually, Aubrey, he, I mean, he was such a talent, you know. Mm. And he could have gone so far had he had what we, everybody has now, an agent. Mm. He didn't know what to do. He didn't know how to go negotiate. You know, he was.
0: The business he, side of it, he just. He,
1: mm. he didn't understand it, mm. you know. and It was foreign to him. And eventually, uh, he ended up going back and running his backhoe. Mm. Gosh, that's a shame, huh? Yeah. But look what Roger and Torsten has accomplished with their careers as a yeah. springboard for yeah. what they do now.
0: Yeah, game-changing for the sport, you yeah. know, both of those guys. Absolutely. How did you wind up in the U.S. then? Take me kind of from that Australia or New Zealand trip, and and you're working at Husky and racing. How'd you wind up here? Good tie-in. Okay.
1: Good tie-in. So on the way back, Jane says, come with me. We're going to go to California. We're going to ride. the Mint 400. We're going to do some desert races. And I did a few. The desert races and um,
0: and how were those two uh, that's got to be a completely different thing for you yeah, right uh, you don't have deserts <laughs> over there
1: that is the fun part so we did one in um, near where um, uh, it's not Spring Mountain, any in, in the desert, not here. Okay. And the name will come to me in a minute. And it was the regular one smoke bomb, you know, 500 people on the line, and I'm say, saying to Jan, you know, how, how do you do this? He said, well, you know, they're gonna. There's a banner, you know, there's a smoke. I said, okay, I'll follow you, you know. So we're standing on the starting line, and I didn't even sign up because I didn't know how this was gonna go. Yeah. You know, but I borrowed a husky from a guy called Lynn Fortner. And he was actually working next to uh, Tracy's in Burbank on Victory Boulevard. And right. he was a helicopter uh, machinist. He, ma- he machined and built helicopter parts. He lent me his bike. You know, Which so was what? Husker 250. Okay. Uh, regular. So I'm there next to him. And we kickstart him. And, of course, our bike started on the first kick, always. You know, and we're off there. You know, we're in the leading. And there's this guy by the name of Larry Burquist. Okay. Yeah, I think, I think he's won, once on the Baltaco Okay. And and uh, we're in lead somewhere. And I follow him and he's leading. And I ha- don't know what happened to JM. And, you know, he's first and I'm following, but I haven't, I'm not in the race, right? So we get to a couple of these downhills. And the first thing I learned about American riders were they had no idea how to go downhill. Hmm. So he's slowing down, you know, he's skidding his bike. He's even getting off and walking. I'm just riding down. <laughs> so I waited at the bottom and here comes Larry. You know, and eventually he wins the race. And he finds out that he has actually an up pipe on, on the, on the bull taco. And he burned his leg because he was really trying to hurt. His son, Larry has passed away. But his son is very good at talk, telling the story because Larry wrote it down and had it there. Mm. And when he came to the finish line and he was really hurting, he, he realized I wasn't even in a race. And he was kicking himself because... Burned himself he, up trying to... Precisely. you know. Yeah. So anyway.
0: This is Larry Rossler's dad? Is that what you said? Larry Burquist. 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 Okay. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. yeah.
1: So anyway, so I started with that, and that's what led to the Mint 400 and so on. But this, the answer to your question, you know, Edison and I had learned that I was in the country, and, and John Penton, you know, who was the East Coast distributor at the time, knew yeah. that I was here, and I had met John in Europe for something. So after I had left and gone back to Sweden, apparently they wrote letters to Husqvarna in Sweden saying, you know, this... Swedish guy, Gunnar Lindström, you know, came here to ride. You know, He could be really useful to us here because he, his language skills are reasonable and he knows the bike and he's a decent rider. So can you send him back? So that's how it started. So I got back home in 68 and you know, in the in summer and I worked at the factory then with a bunch of other stuff. And then they said, you know, we, we should think you should go in 68 for the, for the Trans Am or whatever we call it at the time. Yep. You know, we're sending Torsten Holman over and a few other guys. You can help them, you know, being, you know, the go-between go guy. Okay. So, and, and you can ride, which was important to me, yeah. but not to them, yeah. you know. So we did that. So 68 uh, rode with the Trans Am, you know, Joel and Roger and Bickers were there, you know, and, and uh, we traveled in vans. You know, it was none of this flying in and out and that kind right, of stuff. Right. You know. And we had a great time, you know.
0: Yeah, well tell me about those experiences. I mean, yeah. uh, talk about, if you're a motocross fan, especially that era, you're traveling around with, with those guys, Yeah, racing in America. I mean, wow, what a cool thing. What huh? a cool
1: thing, yeah. yeah. And a little bit of a, of a war broke out between Bickers and Joel Robert, you know, because Bickers, you know, he, he rode CZ. And and um, Joel did, too. But he would have a market pen, you know, and he would go and write a little CZ on your bike somewhere, you know, <laughs> on, in underneath the fenders. And, right. And, and we, we would come out and Bickers would say, God damn it, you know. He's another, <laughs> so they had this little war going on, you know. And yeah. Eventually somebody spray-painted CZ on one of the Vans, and that was the end of oh, it.
0: Oh, boy. That was the end yeah, of it. Yeah, that's <laughs> a little too far.
1: <laughs> but that kind of stuff went yeah. on. And, you know, the brand loyalty of the time, well, internally it was good, but we had a lot of fun with, with our competitors and we never really changed ideas about bikes, but of course everybody could see what you did. Sure. You know, so, so uh, yeah, a great time. Yeah.
0: Roger told us when he was on the show um, some stories about uh Robert. and mm-hmm. he just said that guy was so such a, a character. He mm-hmm. would constantly pranking people. And uh, he was telling us about this race in South Africa where he, Emptied a bottle of Jack Daniels or some whiskey. I, I can't remember what the brand was, and filled it up with iced tea. Yeah, and he's just walking around the pits, chugging this thing, yeah. and everyone's freaking out. And he goes up to the start line for the moto, and he goes to kick his bike, and he misses the kickstarter, and he's stumbling, and he's got his helmet on. Yeah, back, the helmet back on backwards. Back. Have you heard that story? Yeah. I mean, that's was he pulling that kind of stuff?
1: Typical him. He yeah. Would do, yeah, yeah,
0: oh, yeah. That's funny. Gosh. Yeah. Yeah. He seemed like a character.
1: Yeah, I got to know him quite well when he was here. Yeah. So I don't want to say we're friends but we were acquaintances and we traveled together a good few times you know and and uh, we knew each other well.
0: Yeah. 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 Interesting. Okay so uh how did the racing go here for you in those first couple of adventures when you were coming over for the tournaments.
1: Well Trans um, occasionally I would beat you know the Husqvarna or CZ or other guys but not on a regular basis. So I was a good fill-in guy in between you know the the top dogs you know the Grand Prix guys. And, and the local talent from here okay. that was growing rapidly. I mean, we had Higgins and Weinert and, and uh, okay. Gary Bailey and other things, people like that. That
0: So really you, were, were. you were probably better than the American guys, but just finishing behind. Yeah. Yeah. Those guys, okay. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Um, so tell me about that transition then. So how many years did you do that where you were just coming over for events?
1: Well, then, then in 69, I stayed here most of the year as a tourist. I didn't have a visa so i was a three months at a time kind of guy oh, okay. you know so i was here and i i worked with the dealers i you know we had service schools for how to repair the bike and i was a communicator back to sweden saying we really are hurting you know we need this kind of part is going at a rate which is higher than we thought so we need to make more parts and of course uh, gears for transmissions were our key part because they were high wear if you didn't know what you were doing. Mm. Of course, people starting out in Husqvarna didn't know what they were doing. Yeah. It makes sense, right? Yeah. So before you learn that, so we had, a, and we actually had as a say, policy at Husqvarna to make our own gears. They were made in house, mm. you know, and, and they were very um, sophisticated. The design was not sophisticated. The design was terrible, mm. but the materials, the hard treatment, heat treatment, and, and, and how they went together, was very critical because the transmission was under such a heavy load it was earlier transmission from Silverpilin right mm same, yeah same same, same, same one yeah mm. we managed to mr. Hellman managed to put a fourth gear in it in 63 you know 62 but but that was a touch and go mm. so we needed more of that so I would communicate that kind of information back to, to the factory
0: okay so that so your role with them they were kind of saying hey why don't you stay over there and help us develop our dealer network that was part of the yep. assignment they were kind yep. of giving
1: you. and Ryder schools because we always had us an ambition to have an american world champion on husqvarna hmm. that was a stated a goal stated early on in our development you know hmm. when uh, you know when edison died and John Penton and eventually Mr. Farnstrom that became eventually the chief of Husqvarna from a business side here in America. You know, yeah. He had an office in New York and he was selling, selling. he was the importing shotguns and sewing machines under the name Viking. Okay. Which was Husqvarna.
0: Yeah. Huh.
1: And eventually, you know, Edison and I had sold some of these bikes. So he sold two bikes, right? Everybody said, so he said, right, here's, I'll send money for five more. And now the factory said, well, Here's money for five more. What are we gonna do? You know, well, you know, we gotta better send the yeah, bikes because yeah. now he's already paid, right? So he got in behind. You know, Edison why were Dye. they so
0: reluctant, though? If somebody's willing to pay, why wouldn't because they be was, like?
1: There was no motocross in America. We had a motocross bike. The management was not, and really, they just didn't
0: think people would f- recreationally ride them. I that mean, was
1: unheard of. Anybody was. buying a bike and not racing at a pro level, absurd, was unheard of hmm. because the money.
0: You know, yeah. Which what were they going? What would they have sold for back then?
1: Well, the first bikes were sold for four thousand three hundred Swedish kronas. Okay. Which is about, at the time, six seven hundred bucks. I can't remember the exchange rate at the time, but but interesting. But you know, and and I wrote about that adventure, saying the idea of somebody here Hmm. buying a bike for recreational use was unheard of in America. So the, the the planning and how many can we sell. That kind of stuff was always off because people bought these bikes and eventually come. Now we're skipping sixty-nine, seventy. When the bikes were so four hundred, bike was so successful, people paid five hundred bucks, which at the time was a lot of money mm-hmm. for air freight
0: mm-hmm. to get. It's almost as much as the bike. Yeah, yeah.
1: So they were so desirable. So
0: you guys eventually, as as more came in, you were surprised by how many people were buying them, oh, even yeah. for recreation. Oh, and, yeah, yeah,
1: and in. I think it was '68. The bikes the retail price was going to go over a thousand bucks, and we had a crisis meeting in '69. Much, must have been saying, "Would anybody ever buy a motorcycle that's over a thousand bucks?" And eventually, we said, "You know, well, we've got to have to do it because otherwise, we're going to lose money." Yeah. So they were a thousand or eleven $1, hundred bucks.
0: U.S. U.S. Yeah. Isn't that funny? And just, just, uh, I, I remember four years ago, you know, working as an editor and I had several manufacturers come to me and say, Hey, we're asking kind of people in the industry. Do you think, you know, at $10,000, if we go over that, is that like same thing? It, it's funny, right? That at 10, now we're at 10,000 uh-huh. going, man, I don't know. Will anybody really pay that crisis
1: meeting? Yeah. Everybody on deck, we're on the table. Uh, what are we going to do? Oh yeah.
0: That's crazy. Um, so, how long were you doing the kind of back and forth until they until you moved here?
1: Well, I I got my uh, green card in seven seventy nineteen seventy okay. seventy one and it took a while of doing. So then I was more stationed here, and, and I you know I had a motorhome that I used for time well, one. Me and Gary Bailey were the first to have motorhomes mm. to live in, so we were breaking new ground there. Yeah, you know. So and eventually I I, uh, I lived here in. in uh, Cardiff by the sea. Oh, not, really not far from here. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that I Want to work for us in San Diego, in San Diego,
0: beautiful spot, beautiful spot. Yeah. 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 Especially back then. Boy, it's probably yeah. incredible. Yeah.
1: Yeah. We, we rented of course, but, but yeah, still. Well, yeah.
0: Yeah. It's still not affordable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's gotten even worse. Yeah. Um, and did you, what were you, what was your, what did you think of America? What was it like back then? Mm. You'd been to Australia, New Zealand, you'd been around, um, What was it like? It was. I was
1: impressed by the fact that the the country is made for travel, set up for travel. There are roads, there are hotels, you know, there are restaurants. And, you know, like in Europe, you have to pull off into a city and find some place you know behind something right the local hotel or something but here things were all lined up lined up
0: and easier to get from state to state right over there it's passports and
1: and, yeah yeah. oh yeah exactly money same you know Mm. you don't have to have different kind of money in your wallet Mm. for different countries and Mm. which was the next uh, expertise by rolf tiblin you know he he was the one that had wallets with different Oh, is thing. that right? Yeah, he was and he would show yeah, the biggest wallet. That was typical of <laughs> like right? you had to have the biggest wallet. Right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So he had that and it all these various sections with French francs and German and Belgium and, and Dutch and British and, Yeah, I
0: can't imagine, you know, when I talk to guys who on the show who raced GPs in that era. Right. There <laughs> money in all these different currencies and, and different you know, your passport, your your papers, um the carnets. The for, carnets. Yeah. And then they would even keep money, uh, knowing they were probably going to have to pay off, you know, to get, because they'll they'll look in your van and you got to give them T-shirts or hats. Or Mm -hmm. like, there was ways of bribing the guards. I'm like. Well,
1: that was for the eastern side on behind the iron curtain. Right, right. You know, between Holland, Belgium, Germany, that kind of France (laughs) but stuff. Often, you know, there was a guy standing there with a gate and he would wave at you. Other times they would check your papers and look at your passport. But it became quite relaxed eventually.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I just, it, it seems super stressful to me. And yeah. of course, there's no GPS on your phone. So you're reading maps and trying to figure out one country to another. Like it just. Lots of maps. I don't think people understand how, Those what are, went into moving around yeah. that country or, you know, <laughs> that continent yeah. back then. Um, okay. So how did you meet Malcolm Smith? Um, did you meet him kind of your first couple of times over here?
1: No. So in 67, I was at the Husqvarna and I was, and now I was an engineer. Okay. <laughs> now i got a real job. You know, and
0: was it hard for you to quit racing or were you kind of like, ah, it's time?
1: Well, they still allowed me to race because I was a test engineer. So I was using all these test parts, you know, and sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. You know, so you take your chances, but at least the price was right. Yeah. (laughs) So in the summer of 67, um, they they come to me and says, you know what, we're going to build 10 or 12 bikes for the six days. Okay. which goes on in September, and it's in, it's in Poland, in Zakopane. And we are going to sponsor, it is a ICE team of six guys from America, and we're going to have a military team, you know, because the military people were always wanting to buy bikes, and they use this, we're going to test your bikes, that's six days, right? Okay. But there are also a bunch of people within the military that loved to ride bikes, so they they were part of the military six days team. Okay. But that's besides the point here. So I built six bikes for the uh, for the U.S. team, and you know I took put them all took production bikes, took them all apart, right gear ratios, you know, run them in, break them in, tighten flywheel nuts, make sure everything is ready to go, and, you know, build uh, car, uh, protection for the for the air cleaner, that kind of stuff. We delivered them to to uh, to Poland in in September of '67. And and here comes the American writers. I've written about this many times, so okay. I, um, the stories were familiar. Buddy Kings, Malcolm Smith, Lero Winners, a guy from, some, um, from uh, San Francisco by the name of uh, Johnson, who eventually disappeared, and, and a guy from St. Louis by the name of Dave Munganest. Okay. Right? And they were the team the American okay. team and of course this is something that Edison put together because they were his strong dealers you know and people that he wanted to reward for being mm, Husqvarna dealers here sure. in the US okay. so here we come and all the bikes are lined up and I got them all broken in I've ridden them all they are they are perfect right yeah right so so the first guy I get there is Bud Eakins I, I knew about Bud and I read about the big bear run and that kind of stuff in magazines attack. the okay so he looked at the bike and he said, it looks really funny, you know. It's a little, it's a little thing, you know. But I, I guess I'll ride it. And he disappeared, you know, to some outfit somewhere, you know, Okay. drink a few beers, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And, and here comes Malcolm, you know. I didn't know Malcolm before. He says, oh, yeah, you know, this is, looks nice, you know. So he takes the whole thing apart just to make sure it's good. I said, Malcolm, it's good. I worked on this one. I got a check.
0: Oh, is that right? He did, you know.
1: And here, so, and there's... Leroy L- Winter. Do you, have you ever heard of Leroy Winters? He was a dealer in in Little Rock, so. Arkansas. Okay. He smoked cigarillas with a little plastic tip on him. Now. Okay. And he was a character, and a great guy. Yeah. Great guy, and a good writer. All so right. So he's in there, you know. So he's saying, "Oh, I brought some stuff for my bike." So he brings a seat which is covered, you know, with the stars and stripes, you know, as for the seat cover. So he takes it over, put that on. He has some. Cover for the tank with stars and stripes and whatnot on it. And he's got this handlebar, this wild bar.
0: <laughs> like big old. Uh... Uh,
1: not that big, but a little higher, you know. Okay. And I'm going, oh my God, can any of these people ride a bike? I have no idea what they can do. Yeah,
0: the way you're making this sound, it sounds <laughs> like the bike in Easy Rider with, uh, you know. That's
1: uh... exactly what it was. <laughs> what yeah. It was like... <laughs> you know, if you saw the bike. But they were all good riders.
0: Okay. So and, I was going to ask that. Were they respectable yeah. or were people yeah. laughing at them? I him? think two
1: out of, two out of the four got gold medals.
0: Oh, wow. You know, they they oh, do geez. really good. Okay.
1: You know? so, I mean, I know
0: Malcolm they, was oh, good. Yeah. But, yeah. Yeah. So,
1: he was good. So that's how I met Malcolm. <clears throat> and then when I came back here uh, in '68, now i have been in New Zealand, right? Of course, I go to see Malcolm. You know, so yeah. now I have that connection already, and he's the one that helped us put it back together for the Mint Four Hundred, which we ah, okay. did. And you we're back to where we gotcha. talked to a few little gotcha. while ago. Yeah,
0: he's a character, huh? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I only got to know him later in life as I got into the sport. But yeah, um,
1: well, he was a kid, you know, that had a talent, but not a lot of business acumen, right? Right. So he's finally. Got this. You you know the story of Edison and Brick showing up with the bike and Malcolm rides it and say, you know, I'm a Greaves rider, but I'll I'll try your bike just for the hell of it. So he tries the Husqvarna and says, you got yourself a rider. You know, mm. good old story. He's been told many yeah. times. Yeah. By, by Malcolm, you know, so he now he's rides Husqvarna. He works at K and N Motorcycles in Riverside on 1689 Lacadena Drive. I still remember. Wow, look at that. And yeah. one of the things that happened there, we're there in 68 and we're talking about he's now in charge of the service shop and two guys come out and they look kind of said do you remember the guy that lived in a house next door you know the kid uh, rode bikes a little bit says yeah yeah well he got killed in vietnam last night and that really set us back thinking you know this is serious business you know i mean there's a war going on and you know Mm. and people get killed and 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 you know come back wounded and whatnot yep. and we had a long thought and a little bit of talk about this old war thing you know what have you so and jn's part of the, the whole discussion there so that's something that was a, really is a, what do you call it you recognize you know that yeah kind
0: of an eye-opener for you guys that's the word yeah that's the word hmm. you know
1: so we put together the bike for the mint 400 there and it worked there and then we met this guy he was from hawaii he was a Big car dealer, Ford dealer, what the heck was his name? And he was also buying motorcycles, Muscovarna's. And he had, Malcolm had, he'd been given an assignment said, Malcolm, anytime a any new bike comes out from Muscovarna, prepare it and send it to me in Hawaii. Which, of course, Malcolm did, you know.
0: Oh, any new model or, or new year. model. Okay. Yeah,
1: exactly. Yeah. So he took us to lunch at the Mexican place there, and we're all talking. And Malcolm says, You know, I'm so busy at the shop and all. And he says, hey, the guy says, You know, Malcolm, if you're ever gonna make any money, you gotta sell things. You can't be a service guy. <laughs> yeah. You gotta sell things. Yeah. And Malcolm is going, well, you know, and I'm learning too, right? Yeah. I'm here to sing. So the next thing you know is Malcolm is getting into accessories and mm. starting to sell, you know, his boots and getting to what but in my opinion, there may have been other things that influenced Malcolm at the time. But from my perspective where I sat, Jimmy Pfluger. Okay. Jimmy Pfluger was the guy who told Malcolm like this, you got to sell things, Malcolm, to make any money.
0: That was a fork in his road. I think so. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. I'd never heard of that guy. So yeah. he, he was probably inconsequential in the sport in general. But for Malcolm, that was yeah. A, yeah. a big influence yeah. on
1: him. Hmm. Big car dealer in Hawaii and road bikes on the side.
0: Interesting. Yeah. Um, okay, I, let's take a quick break. We still got a lot to get through, but I'm going to take a fast break here. Stay tuned. This is our Torley Designs timeout. We're going to be back here with more Gunnar Lindström. There's a new product on the market that's going to help you with your riding and racing, and it's Elevate Action Sports. If you've not yet gone and checked it out at ElevateActionSports.com, it's a collective of riding coaches, the likes of which has never been put together. Grant Langston, Ryan Hughes, Jeff Emmick, Johnny Campbell and myself, David Pingree, bringing all of our years of experience in professional racing to one place with professionally produced videos and all kinds of supporting staff to help you with your mental side of racing, your physical side, your bike setup, your bike maintenance. We cover it all. Get to Elevate Action Sports right now and join the community.
3: There's a reason every AMA championship in the past decade was won on Dunlop tires. They are the best. Choose the best performing tire and a brand that has never wavered in their support of our sport. Choose Dunlop. Pro Circuit. Pro Circuit products are designed with one goal in mind, winning. Through passion and hard work, Pro Circuit has operated the most successful 250 team in the history of the sport. They use that same formula when developing exhaust, engine, and suspension parts for every brand. When only the highest level of performance is acceptable, trust Pro Circuit. Since 2009, Seat Concepts has been dedicated to making the best aftermarket seats more comfort, more grip, more riding. For 10 years, we've continued to raise the bar. Innovation and American craftsmanship make Seat Concepts the world-leading manufacturer of
4: Power Sports Seats. Something from nothing. That's what Nihilo Concepts is about. It starts with a spark, an idea, a concept, which leads to a design and finishes with engineered excellence with the highest quality products created with durability in mind. All our products are made in the USA at our state-of-the-art facility in Stewart, Florida. Whether you are a weekend warrior, ride for fun, or at the highest level of competition, Nihilo Concepts offers innovative titanium, aluminum, and carbon fiber parts for your dirt bike. We offer a wide variety of products that you can customize to your liking. Browse our site for foot pegs, brake tips, engine components, specialty tools, frame grip tape, lever grips, carbon fiber components, motor stands, our secondary on switch plus much more. Head to nihiloconcepts.com and see for yourself why factory teams like Red Bull KTM, Rockstar Husqvarna, Troy Lee Designs Gas Gas, Orange Brigade, Club MX, KLM Gas Gas, and some of the fastest riders in the world choose Nahilo Concepts.
3: Specialized bicycles. Specialized leads the way in the world of bicycling. Whether it's cross country racing, downhill, e-bikes, enduro, road, gravel, dual slalom, dirt jumping, or all-mountain bikes that do it all, Specialized has the perfect ride for you. The brand is synonymous with engineering excellence and innovation that steers the industry. Visit your local Specialized dealer for a test ride and see just how good Specialized products are.
0: With a rich history in motocross, ProX has been dedicated to supplying quality components since 1975. Whether you're rebuilding an engine or just need a new chain, ProX Racing Parts aims to bridge the gap between OE quality and affordability. ProX has over 9,000 part numbers and over 60 different product types that are manufactured by highly reputable or even OEM suppliers and are offered at affordable prices to help keep riders on the bike instead of in the garage. Visit ProX.com to search parts for your bike or check them out at your favorite online or local dealer.
2: Audio jungle.
0: The guys are just breaking in their race bikes which will leave on the semi this Saturday to go to the first Supercross for our coast in Orlando. Uh, so the guys are just be goofing off a little bit, do some cool photos, do some cool videos. When you go racing you want to do well but a big key is keeping the bikes on the
4: track. That's why we chose to work with Motul. Expectations coming in as a rookie is just to try and get my feet wet and uh, honestly just send it, see where I end up and uh, do my best out there, but just ride aggressive and ride like myself in practice and uh, I should have a good time. Challenges of this sport, I believe, is just simply staying healthy. Uh,
0: With how fast we're going um, and what we're doing, your margin for mistake is really, really small.
3: Stay Sick. If you have little rippers, then you have had to have seen Stay Sick Bikes by now. We have created bike and experiences that allow kids to develop sooner and empower them to find their own ride. From learning to ride to sharpening skills, the Stay Sick promise is accelerated growth. Whatever path your family chooses, it's going to be the ride of your life. Stay Sick Stability Cycles.
4: I'm on vacation every single day because I love my occupation. Ay-ay-ay. I'm on vacation. If you don't like your life, then you should go and change it.
0: Ay-ay-ay. Welcome back. That was your Troyly Designs timeout. If you guys have not been over to troiledesigns.com, swing by and check out all the things they've got going on. Brand new GP Pro line. Uh, they've got new helmets, new SE5 models, uh, GP models, all kinds of different designs, classic Troyly design styling. Top top safety on those helmets, and uh, they're doing paint. They're doing all kinds of stuff. So, go check those guys out. Troilydesigns.com. Uh, we're proud to have them part of the show, including my Yamaha merch, all Troily Design stuff. So, uh, we thank them. Uh, Gunnar, getting back to you here. Uh, so, at what point did they put you in charge of the race team here? What year was that when you when you started running Husqvarna's race team?
1: Well, well it was seventy three.
0: Oh, 73. Okay. Yeah. So prior to that, you did like in seventy two. Was that the first year we did nationals here, or it was uh, recorded as AMA nationals? Yes,
1: I think so. It was a lot of indecision in the beginning as to what is a national, what is counting towards what, and you know, not being an American. I, you, you remember the story with Pierre and all that yeah. stuff, right? So that was a lot of indecision at the time, and but we didn't care that much. We just loved to ride, yeah. you know, and it was yeah. the same thing with the Americans. You know, we had a great time, and and whoever counted points and whatnot yeah fine
0: whatever yeah it wasn't like anyone was getting rich at the time right so no really maybe the most pure form of the sport you guys were just doing it because you loved it absolutely was the the vibe around that time between you guys coming over and americans did you get along well were the americans sort of like oh these guys coming over here and beating us you know was there tension any there at all
1: not that i knew of okay and, and certainly not between the competitors. Yeah. You know, because I think there was the whole idea there of them learning and following and, and observing and that kind of stuff. Yeah. And, and they didn't pay a lot of attention to who won eventually. But if, as you know, as people starting to get better, you know, that becomes a little more yeah. uh, tense, you know, speaking. You know, Maybe and late uh, 70s it starts it, to get a exactly, little. Exactly. <laughs> you know, and, you know, yeah. Gary yeah. Bailey and Jimmy Weinert were the first that I recall were, that were, you know, starting to. Keep up and, and learn how to do this. Thing. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So the re- when, I, when I go to results and look back through, all I can find for you is 72. Yes. Uh, everything prior to that would have been trans AMAs and things like that, right?
1: Yep. And there's a reason for that that we'll come to maybe in a bit. In a bit. Okay.
0: But mm-hmm. I just want to go through this 72 season because you did quite well. And, uh, you know, you won Cal Expo, which I was trying to figure out where that was.
1: Yeah. That was the Sacramento. Sacramento? Mm-hmm. Okay. Sacramento Fairgrounds.
0: So, Cal Expo and you won Straddle Line Park. No idea where that is. What was Straddle Line?
1: That sounds like Kansas to me.
0: Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sounds about right. But yeah. seconds at Saddleback, second at Road Atlanta. Um, you know, you did great that season. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, you know, I, as, you, as we alluded to, there wasn't a lot of money probably to just be a professional racer here in America at the time. Right. Is that why you, when you were offered that management position the next year, you. You and I, this is the right way to go?
1: Yes, but there's a good reason behind it. Okay. You know, that we'll get to now. Okay. You know, so, 63, uh, uh, Husqvarna made 100 bikes. And according to Torsten, that was the most competitive, the best bike ever. He mm. really, and of course, he became world champion. Yeah. And so on. And then, of course, and I gets in in 66, and bikes come over here. And we're doing really good. But we're still only a four-speed you know, and everybody over here saying, you know, wish I had another gear. We had the 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 compromise, uh, which you call an eight-speed, which was a, a two-speed primary. Okay. So we had two times four technically, right. but in reality it was more like five and a half gears, so to speak. But the the intent was eventually to have a real gearbox, and a real transmission with five or six gears. Sure. Right.
0: And what was the what was the challenge to making that happen? Seems like you just add another gear onto the spline was it space or like what was the challenge then
1: space is actually the best word because okay. the distance between the two shafts were too small hmm. so you cannot get you know the ratio you want or the other way got gotcha. 12, 12 fifth gear and all and the shifting mechanism was uh, in this initially built on a moped you know we had a, you know a fork that moved the gears instead of a shifting drum okay or a plate in the case of cz okay you know and and this fork Moved it, and it originally it was a Moped transmission. We call it left. We <laughs> Not a lot it, of tension on We enough. call it left and right. You know, boom, there was the first gear, and then all oh, the other side was second gear, and the middle was neutral, mm-hmm. you know. So then it became a three-speed for Silver pill and eventually four-speed for that. But it, the need for and we talked about the gears being our, you know, and so on. So the the need or the uh, demand from the market was always to have five-speed and there was also need to have a 125, and we had talked about that for a long time. Edison <clears throat> and even um, uh, John Penton, you know, wanted a 125, and we're all saying, 125, you know, there's really no market, you know, there's not that many bikes. In Europe, it was non-existent.
0: Was oh, that right? Yeah. You know, were you making five hundreds at the time, $250, 500 or just two fifty? Two
1: fifties and three sixties, which eventually in sixty nine grew to become a four hundred. Okay, you know, three sixty. Long story there about technical difficulties and cost and investment that we didn't have, mm-hmm. and that kind of stuff. We were still treated at the factory as sort of an outcast. You know, the factory itself, you know, were you know sewing machines and had been guns for a long time, not anymore after seventy, and they had what they called a the white goods, which just you know uh, refrigerators uh, mm. washing machines that stuff kind of stuff
0: that's where the money was right that's where I'll, the money yeah. was yeah
1: so and and we Husqvarna people motorcycle people were giving Husqvarna a great name all over the world you know i mean i'd been in new zealand and winning races and husqvarna you know and but the the one of the beefs we had with the pr side and the advertising side mm. of husqvarna was that they would never give us credit for the great name the name we put out in of all, all literally all over the world. Yeah. And that was unanimous. We all thought that. And Mr. Hellman, who was in charge, you know, um, there said the same thing. And you now they said, darn it, if we could get these advertising folks to give us some money, because we are the one that is spreading the name all over, you know, you know sewing machines for that matter, you know. Mm. But it never came to that. Hmm. It never came to that. So we always had to care our own. And in the beginning...
0: Was that a case of maybe just the marketing team that didn't understand or know motorcycles, or was it the owner, uh, whoever the CEO was at the time that didn't well, the, have a passion for racing? The
1: board. Yeah, the, mm. the, it was the board.
0: Cause you see that with, um, you know, even currently, or if you look at Honda in the eighties, I, I use that as an example. Right. Cause that, you know, Sekiro Honda mm. loved racing mm-hmm. and man, when he was in the driver's seat, he put a lot of money towards racing, oh, yeah. right? Yeah. But as that has changed, and you see it with different manufacturers over the years, if the if the man running things doesn't care about racing, boy, that budget thins way out, and you see it. You so, have to
1: justify the expense in a much more rigorous and and uh, solid way, you right. know. Right. Saying it can't just be emotional. It's right? a numbers game then, you know. Okay, well, the race team is going to cost us a million. You know, what do we get back? You know, well, we we'll get name recognition worth five hundred thousand. Uh-uh. Mm. No, no, no go. Well, if the recognition is $2 million, now it's a good deal, right? Mm. So so that's how the bean counters, right? Yeah, yeah right, like, right. The bean counters taking over from the emotional owner and that kind of stuff. Yeah. So with Husqvarna, you know, we, we had a demand for a long time for this five-speed, you know, real engine with a better shifting, you know, and this and that. And we had also started looking at the two-cylinder bike at the time, at two 250s next to each other, oh. you know, which was a five hundred. And and there was also a demand from Edison Dye Say I can sell because he had in in sixty eight sixty nine come up with the idea of this mm, compromise. You know the road bike. You know that you was actually a motocross bike with lights on it, it, which we now call dual purpose. Right. He was the he thought of that. Dual first. sport. He
0: was the original the, dual sport. He
1: was the only one. And and Yamaha DT ones were part of that thing as it's developed. Mm. You know, mm. whatever you so, but so in sixty eight nine seventy we're winning races uh is a world champion you know twice and and Nikola is doing good you know as a as a two fifty guy and finally, the board is breaking down and saying, "Wow, you know you guys are doing so good. you know we were actually going to allocate some money now to building a new engine to building a new manufacturing plant, and they started that in seventy one and and they, everything is going on and mm-hmm. Now I'm in America, right? So I have a little bit of a distance to the idea that this new engine comes out. And this new engine comes out and it's
0: terrible. Oh, no.
1: It's overweight, you know. It doesn't have, it's got this huge clutch on it. You know, I mean, some of the technical stuff, it doesn't matter, but it is not very good. Mm. So, So in 72, we are struggling, you know. And I kind of, did, did my own experiment and and I was surprised to see the results you had there because I didn't think I did that well in seventy two because it was with the new the, what we call the five speed okay the big the big engine
0: it was literally that was what you guys called it. literally
1: was a big engine some people have other names that are not so
0: <laughs> we can't say <laughs> you know,
1: exactly you know and something has to do with shipping and yeah, you know right. and anchoring boats and that kind of stuff you know but anyway the engine was not very good. And and so um, the thinking was that I'm going to give up this riding part because I cannot contribute anymore as a rider. You know, we had new guys, now, Mark and Blackwell and Billy Grassi and all these Bob Grassi and all these other people, Billy too for that matter. And so the thing to do now, we need to develop the bikes. We've lost our way. So in 73, we're going to have this racing team here in America. And we're going to try to do well and work on the bikes and whatever. So I was I was then accepted the management job of that. Not so much to manage the team as to how to travel and how to do this and that, but from a technical side. Hmm. And and we realized pretty quickly that this bike has a lot of def- not only is it overweight, but it also has a lot of other deficiencies. So in in '72, I had been back to the factory and I said, This is not going. And here is something. That I think you can appreciate, you know. Up to that point, we had been incredibly successful, you know. We had winning left and right, you know, world championships, Swedish in America, desert, Baja and whatnot. And the only real, I've used this saying before, but the only real conflict we had was what, who's gonna pay for dinner on Sunday night,
2: Hmm.
1: you know it is easy to work for a company that is doing well, that is developing, that is growing, you know, and, you know, wow, you know, patting people on the back was the only thing thing we needed to do. Wow. And then suddenly in 72 comes this backwash. Mm. It's terrible.
0: Mm. Which bike is, is then excelling? If if you guys are kind of not making that step forward, which bikes were kind of, were the Japanese coming in at that time?
1: Yeah, and Mako was doing good. Mako, yeah. Okay. In in Europe. And the Honda's didn't come until seventy three, right? The Jones brothers mm-hmm. were in seventy three, I think. And Yamaha came slightly after that because they won the world championship in seventy three, you know, but now at Torsten had moved to Yamaha, you know, and I had moved to Honda. <laughs> yeah. But now we're skipping ahead. Yeah, yeah, we'll so, get there. So this is the time in any organization where you're tested, Mm. where management, leadership, and initiative is tested. And, and I have to say, none of us at Husqvarna passed that test. Oh. We didn't know what to do. Okay. It is your damn fault, you know. Mm. Oh, no, the writers are hurt, you know, he's got a bad elbow, you know, uh, you know, it's, it's um, something else going on, you know, and, we don't have the right this and that. Instead of a blame game, the management wasn't there to gather us all saying, guys, you know, we got to come up with a plan.
0: Yeah, it doesn't matter whose fault it is. That's How it. are we going to solve it? Let's go.
1: We didn't have mm. that experience. We didn't have that knowledge, and we didn't. Mm. So it became a terrible time of us going, you know, and, and what have you. So. In 73, with the team, we still had this old, ugly engine to work with. And, and, you know, with a lot of rotating weight, it had an enormous clutch on it, which we didn't appreciate the, the negative of at the time. And, you know, what we call rotating weight, mm-hmm. you know. And and it didn't go well at all. And in Europe, and the team struggled, you know. We, we had a good team and good people, good riders, but we couldn't produce the results, mm-hmm. you know. So, you know, I'm realizing now in 73 that we need something different, you know. And they had been starting to work in Europe on a new engine right away, which was initially based on the 125 that we had just come out with. The 125 engine was quite good and it was competitive, but now we're off on a separate issue. But just as our 125 came out, guess what comes out? The Honda Elsinore. Mm. And it just blew it away.
0: That was so a game changer for it. It was a game spoiler. changer,
1: and we had survived well if it wasn't for the mm. <laughs> Alcinoir you know, 125. But that's a side issue, you know. But so with this new 250 engine comes out, you know, a little one, you know, we call it a small engine out too, okay. as opposed to the big one, kind of funny. And and I realized in '73 that there's nothing for me here to do in America. We need to work on technical mm-hmm. issues. We need to build a new frame. We need to work on this and that. Torsten had left, you know, and you know, joined Yamaha. And and we had lost a lot of the riders to others. Not so much maybe because of us, Corners was not as good as it could be, but... The competition you started hiring, you know, Suzuki and Roger and Joël and mm-hmm. Kawasaki came in, you know, and started Yamaha had already hired, you know, Hawkins Anderson. So now there was competition, yeah, which we didn't have before, mm-hmm. you know. Oh well, I mean, yeah, Michael and Cz were still there, but you know,
0: they were all putting in comparable efforts, and it seemed like the Japanese went, "Here's we're going to raise uh, the bar yeah. way up."
1: And for example, in 1970, when Joël rode the first 250 Grand Prix in Spain and won. You know, our observer, Mr. Hellman, he had been there, you know, and he came back and he sat, sat us down in a room and said, you know, guys, he said, we're in trouble. You know, their effort is a 110%. You know, mm-hmm. they have spare bikes, they have mechanics, you know, they have spare parts, you know, and Thorsten Holman came home not long after that saying, you know, I, I'm not going to do this anymore unless I have a mechanic. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was the level we were on at the time. And that wow. was sort of the, the, the big change, you know, so back to what what I was doing. So I realized in 74, I can't do much more good in Sweden, working at the factory, working on technical issues and whatnot. And we had a new frame that came out then within the lay down shocks. You know, we had a new small engine. The bike was really competitive. This was
0: when you went to single shock or the no, lay down dual. No, okay. two lay down. Gotcha. Yeah.
1: You know, this is 74. Yeah, I got you. Know, gotcha. so, yeah. It took us for a long time to get to single <laughs> shock. That's a long story. Well, I want to hear your story. You, day,
0: you went. You said you got really into suspension development. I want to talk exactly. about that.
1: Exactly. So we worked on that. And we had an engineer there by the name of Tommy Malm, And okay. he was the cleverest guy of the whole bunch. He, he was the one that should have run. Swedish, Swedish guy? Swedish guy. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And he designed this frame with the new laydown shocks. So and we had new girling shocks made for it longer and whatnot. And here's a funny story. So... <coughs> When you design springs, you know, there's a, calculations to make a spring from scratch. It's a long, and at the time, we had slide rules. There was no computers, right. you know, certain stuff, stuff. So, you know, Tommy Malms invents these things. We have to have this shock, and he needs a new spring. And and he actually then convinced management that this is what we need to do. This is the way to go. This is the right direction. So we needed a long shock, and all the only people we knew were girling. So he, at the time, got to fly from Sweden to England to work with Gerling for a week. Unheard of that somebody would fly, you know, on an airplane, you know, to go to Gerling and work with them on the shock, you know. And he did, and he came back and he had these shocks with him, you know, they had tested it out. But he said... And and let's finish the spring story. So now he goes to the design guys. They say, you know, I need the spring. It's going to be this long, you know, and this amount of coils, and it's going to have this rate, you know. And and then the guy goes, do you know how many calculations there are to make a spring on the slide rule? He says, yeah, 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 but, you know, why don't you get started? Ah, (laughs) I want to do that. So Tommy disappears one day. He comes back at 5 o'clock, you know, when we sign off. Clock out, and nobody's asking him any question. Next day, he's gone again, and he comes back at the end of the second day, and he's got this piece of paper in his hand that says, "Urban, you know, here's your spring calculation, complete, thing. And we goes, "How do you do that?" Says, "Says well," he said. Up here in the lab, we have a laboratory for 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 um, advanced whatever is usually done by the kitchen people. He said they have something up there called a computer (laughs) and you can actually put numbers in and it calculates things for you and we go ah that's not gonna go there this is just a fad you know nothing will ever come of that yeah sounds ridiculous slide rules will rule you know yeah no fun intended so anyway so we built a spring you know and And Tommy puts it all together and we build a bike for Mikola and he becomes the world champion in 74, you know. And so we worked with him. That's how I got to know Mikola quite well. And one funny story was that, you know, that the shifting, you know, for the transmission, left side shifting now for the first time. And the shift lever was long and the shaft was since. Installed near the foot peg. so you almost had to shift backwards like you had to pull oh. you know with your foot you know and it was not easy to do and you missed a lot of shifts yeah and we are test riding it ourselves there you know me and a the guy there you know riding and we figured out this is not right you know you shouldn't have to We're missing a lot of shifts you know because yeah. you can't so we built a little linkage saying that the the uh, shift shaft coming out of it should really be where your ankle is because everything rotates around your ankle right the bone there so we built a little linkage out of you know very br- i mean ag- agricultural style you know <laughs> right. on the outside and we figured ah you know it actually starts to feel good you know mm. and we could change the ratio so the movement is not so long because it's all about leverages and yep. stuff so we built one of those and we tested it and it worked quite well so now we built one inside the engine and i don't know if you ever seen a for an engine but the linkage was still there for years inside mm. you know, and we welded the c- case together and we're standing in the, we had an industrial elevator, you know, big one. So we, me and a, a, a fellow standing with a bike, and here comes know He's on his way up to, to to the lab, right? And he's saying, what do you got there? <laughs> so nice. he sits on it, you know, and he feels the shift and says, this is good, you know? So he goes back into the lab and he talks to Mr. Heldman and says, you know, oh, we saw that shift thing in the elevator, you know, and they had, they had no idea what it was. But he said... I've seen a new gunner and has a shift thing. I want one. And they go, yeah, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. But that's just the experimental stuff. So he goes to Belgium. So he was on his way from Finland through Sweden down to Belgium, which was the start of the Euro season. Yep. So he writes down there and, and uh, shifting is not going well. I guess we can assume. right, In the sand In too, the sand, right? Extra yeah. load on the motor. So on, you know. So calling by telephone from Belgium to Sweden at the time, was not easy. You had to go in and you ask the, eleva- the elevator, the operator to say, I want to call Sweden, this number. And she says, yes, sir. We'll have a call for you ready at one o'clock. Oh, really? So at one o'clock, they would call you and they would call Sweden and say, you're called to Sweden, it's now ready. And you would say, hello, hello, hello. And it would work. I mean, this is something for people that have no idea. What this year works. is this? 16... 74 Wow, okay. Yeah. So he calls back and he's saying, I'm missing a lot of shifts and I like to try that thingy, you know, that linkage thing, right? They go, yeah, 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 we'll think about it, you know, we'll do something eventually. So, of course, they don't do much. And next Sunday, literally next Sunday, Mikula calls again. He's saying, where's that shifting? I'm missing a lot of shifts and I kind of, you know, <clears throat> you know, when you miss shifts, right? Mm-hmm. You know, so he's saying, yeah, yeah, we're, we're going to think about it. So second time, nothing happens. So the third time, he calls back on Monday. He said, What happened to this linkage? He says, if I don't have one here on Friday, I will ride a Yamaha. Oh. And now he got some traction. Yeah. Goes, oh my gosh, we didn't realize it was this important. Oh no, my gosh, Mikkel, I may leave, you know. So they started working day and night. And they had actually somebody that went down there, take it with him in the baggage. To give to Mikola.
0: He, he ran the external linkage?
1: Yeah. No, okay. that was now internal. Oh, it now, now internal. it looked pretty okay. decent. Okay. You, know? you know, I, if I had parts, I'd show you too. Because it's remained within Oscovona for years yeah. between, between that and new transmission. But that was the attitude. I'm saying this to show you. The attitude at the time was, you know, rebuild the bikes. You ride it. If you don't like it, we'll find somebody that does. Mm. It was the, you know, the bottom-up type of deal, you
0: know. Well, and this was really, from what I've gathered, talking to folks who were around that time, the Japanese changed that paradigm. And they said, they took ownership and said, okay, you broke our bike. That's on us. We're going to go back and we'll make it better. Prior to that, they would blame riders, right? Like, no, you're you're just riding this too hard, breaking wheels. Exactly. That's your fault. I talked
1: to Brad about that. He has the story about his chain coming off. Great story, but it's it's so typical of bottom-up versus top-down. And now... You take this kid riding an 85cc on it, the kid would say, I'd like the foot pegs to be a little bit higher, lower, or whatever. We'll have it for you in the morning, sir. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: yeah right? a little different now. A little different. Yeah. Is it better? I don't know. Eh, we could, we could argue. We, there's definitely some yeah. argument room there. Um, anyway,
1: so I spent 74 in Sweden working okay. on the bike and Mikla won his championship and we helped him here and there. And, and now, things, was
0: that a pretty cool experience being part of that world championship? I mean... Uh,
1: I wasn't part of the events themselves because yeah, but, I was an engineering guy back home. But as a Husqvarna but, oh, yeah. guy, and oh, you're you yeah, know. Anytime time you win a world championship, it's, it's cool. a big deal, yeah. right? Yeah. and you know, and people are pumped, you know, yeah. and whatnot. And it was a new frame and a new engine, you know. So we had recovered pretty quickly for '74. So '72, '73 were throwaway years with with a big engine, mm-hmm. and '74, excuse me, we had it just going again. And okay. now we're starting to build again along this this new lines so of the new frame, new suspension. And and so I in 74, I had actually bought a house in Sweden. I was going to stay mm-hmm. home and, and work with the team and have you. And we had been successful enough that I was offered a pretty good position in the technical side of running the thing. You know, I, I, we, we never talked the titles, but anyway, I would be the man in... lead engineer. Elite engineer. Yeah. That's probably a good way to put it. But There was a a director of Motors Products Division. My name was Sven Melkvist. And and so I was told, you have gotta go down to Sven and talk to Sven first because he is the final say. And he didn't approve it. Okay. So I said, well Sven, if I don't have your confidence, I can't work for, for Husqvarna anymore. You know, you're in charge. And if I don't have, so I quit. Oh, wow. December 13, 1974.
0: Do you remember what time? <laughs> I don't
1: but, but I actually went I actually went to uh there's a little wear um store next to it that sold office equipment and I bought a little blue typewriter and I typed my resignation letter on that typewriter. You know, wow. So then now it's the end of 74 December 74 right? What are you going to do? Well, I had several offers over here. One of them, I talked to Dirt Bike Magazine for for a long time, saying, you know, I'm really interested in what you do. Because then, at that time, I realized how little we knew about our competitors. You know, Mm. I never really run a a CZ or a a Mako for that matter. We had no idea. We were actually discouraged from trying our competitors' bikes.
0: Isn't that interesting? Another big distinction from today where, I don't know if they like this to be told, but... You go to over to you know you go out to a Honda test. They've got a Yamaha, a Cowie, a, a KTM. They've got them all. At and some they're, point they're did. riding them back to back at to back, back to back. At some point they do. Yeah.
1: When you are in the in the, time, in the in the timeline where you can actually change things. Right. Once you have pushed the button and the go, sure. you probably don't do that much anymore. Yeah. But but when I worked with Honda, we came to the, come to that in a second. You yeah. know. So I called. You know, uh, Chet Hayberger was in charge of Dirt Bike Magazine at the time. I okay. Said, that offer still stands. You say, oh, yeah, we'd love to you. Come on over here. You know.
0: So it was a test rider slash editor position? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. 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 I, I, I guess, you know, I wasn't born until 75, but I, I didn't realize Dirt Rider was around that long. You <laughs> yeah. know? Motocross Action probably too then as yeah. well? it yeah. just
1: started, you know, with Dick Miller. Yeah. You know, and, and whatnot. And Super Hunky had just left, and Chad Hayberger was in the middle there, and I came in. So I stayed there for two years, and, you know, this is what I call enthusiast's publications you know yeah. they don't pay very well you know
0: right yeah tell me about it you know, there's
1: like you know all these magazines flying high and diving low and knitting and sewing you know and all these magazines and you always get people that want to do that because that's their passion yeah. right but you can only afford to do it so long yeah right so i did it for two years and then i was broke
0: <laughs> <laughs> you worked yourself broke yeah there yeah yeah
1: and i yeah. got to know dick miller and others you know and we got to know me to, which part of that The reason I wanted to do that was that I wanted to see other brands. I wanted to experience riding other bikes. We got to go to these tech briefings with Suzuki, you know, where the engineers would give us graphs and charts. And and I'm going, my golly, look at the, you know, the homework they've done Mm. that we never even knew the name of how to do that, you know. Mm. So there was, I I grew so much from that. Mm. And I learned how to write, you know, in English, because I wanted to be able to do that and show people I've written in English. You know, it's like kind of a proof that I had some knowledge, right? Yeah. You know, and I wanted to learn how to take pictures, which I did too at the time. Of course, we had film and, yeah. you know. in Which uh, is
0: way more complex than shooting now.
1: Necromatics and that kind of stuff. Oh, yeah. I
0: mean. That was a science, time, man. At you... the time, you had F-stops yeah. and you
1: had, you know, I many anyway. So I did that for two years. And then, you know, I realized the time at the end of this that... I need to do something else, so I actually started my, with my gun and gas apart, You know.
0: Okay. Yeah. So that's So it. this was going back to Heike breaking throttle cables. This was your solution to it, mm-hmm. um, and and just briefly ex- describe that. Well, you know, uh, people that know the era will certainly know what it was, but well, for those who don't,
1: <laughs> <laughs> you know, there was different ways to run the throttle cable out of the handlebars, right? but usually people would have a big loop yeah. that would come out and go back in. Into the front through the front number plate and got onto the curb, and if you fall or if you load your bike in a van and they that like you would kink the throttle cable. Of course, the most you know uh, important part of your whole bike is because if you can't shut yeah, off a lot of, you know, of you're, danger. You're, yeah, yeah, you're, you're, it's Like Lars Larsen says, you're hurting, you know. <laughs> so you know the, the the most important part. And and Hakey would of course fall to that side. And his mechanic, Pelhamos, whom I know well knew, well, you know, he had actually a throttle grip with a cable attached and the whole cable and a part to the carburetor, all ready to go, you know, all wired up. So he would be able to change it in minutes and I figured something needs to be done here. So I started working on that and that took me through 77, you know, year that I started that company and all. In the meantime, Honda called and of course in, 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 uh, in, uh, in February 1st, uh, I started with Honda, you know. So, okay.
0: And uh, and what and your position there was race team manager?
1: It wasn't at first. I was actually okay. a technical guy at first. Okay. And we did a lot of work. And now we can go back and talk about the Yamaha monoshock and what had happened there. So when I started with Honda in 78, the chains were coming off, right? You know, derailing. And, and uh, we still have worked on suspension part. The red bikes, you know, the old red engines, the whole one of works. And then, you know, the engineering manager says, you know what, well, could you work with the race team guys a little bit and see, if we can figure out what's going on here. So I got one of those bikes and we put it up on the T-plate and bolted it down and we're bending on swing arms and find out that nobody really had any numbers. How, what What is a swing arm supposed to do? Huh. And what have you. And that just about at that time, we had started to find out, now we're going back to 73, when Yamaha came out and said, Hawken and Anderson is you know he's winning by so much that he got drug tested.
0: Remember oh, yeah. that story, right? No, I don't remember that.
1: In one race the Dharma Monarch was so superior he was um, uh, run down run down at the start started last passed everybody in one race and at the end it, he was so phenomenal that the the, the FIM actually drug tested him because <laughs> never done before. Yeah. But they said there's nobody, no way. Nobody could be that fast without being under whatever, whatever that would be. I don't know.
0: Yeah. I don't know what drugs back what then. Are, you? <laughs> what were we to do? Right.
1: right? Yeah. Anyway. So, so they did. This is a Hakan Anderson story for now. But, and Roger would tell, tell you the same thing. We looked at that Yamaha and we couldn't figure out why the hell it was so good. Hmm. It took years. And at first, people saying, "Well, it's because the shock is under the tank." You know, the Tilkins idea was that you know when you hit a bump, it's gonna shoot shoot the bike forward. But of course, it's not true. You know, and and it took us, and and the first people I think that thought a little bit about the long travel part, because it was longer travel. It was uh, you know uh, Gunter at Mako, you know that moved the shocks up on Willie Bars bike and whatnot.
0: Yep. And, and what, so what year Yamaha was that? 74. 74. Okay.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The bike came in 73, but in 74, they start, you know, they were widely distributed. I think it came here in 75 as, a, as you could buy it hmm. over okay. the counter. Right? Okay. Yeah. So the, the, we didn't realize that number one, it had twice the suspension travel, which we didn't think
0: of. Well, there's and, your answer, right? I mean, that alone is crazy, right? Right.
1: And number two the stability of the rear fork you know because of all the the triangulation they have done was two or three times what we ever thought of, of uh, on a regular swing arm
0: so lateral like lateral yeah. torsion or yeah, yeah. okay yeah. so oh. and they I, got they accomplished that how because Just the, through the, triangle.
1: You know, the the triangulation of the of the monoshock you know the, mm. when you see the bike it's got a big triangulation and yeah. stiffness I wish I had a number to give you, but yeah. no, but, I, but, but I don't.
0: I get the concept. So, so anyway,
1: those were the things that made the bike good, not the fact that the shark was under the tank, mm. you know, which has been disputed many times later. So
0: I've I'm, never heard that theory that hitting bumps shot the bike forward. Yeah, that know was.
1: Oh, you haven't heard the story? No. So um, Roger, oh, Roger would tell you this. They t- tested. Well, back here now. So uh, Sylvan Geburz, whom I know a little bit, but not very well. Okay. He was a CZ factory writer. He lived in Belgium there. And every hour of the week, you know, the frames on those CZs would crack. You know, they mm. needed welding. So we went to this welding shop by run by a name called Lusian Tilkins. And he was an expert fabricator and, and welder and whatnot. And he would weld this frame up and he would put it back together and write Grand Prix. And at one point, Silva told me this himself. He said, Mr. Tilkins says, you know what? Could I build a frame for you that won't break? It's, of course, yeah, you know. Please. This is kill is yeah. heel, you yeah. know. So he said, All right, I'll, I'll do that. He said, Give me some frame parts and whatnot. So he took this bike and modified it. And he had this long shot come from a Citroën car under, under the tank. And the frame is still with the International Motocross Museum. If you follow them, Terry, Terry Goods Museum, he has that frame. Oh, is that right? And, and he built it. And the bike was fabulous, and it's going straight, you know. And you know the shock is under the tank, and Roger and Silo are riding it, you know. And they're saying this is great. And there was actually a straightaway. Roger can tell you this, with trees on both sides, you know, big chops, and they could go through that thing much quicker than they could on the standard CZ. But they realized that you know the CZ is not going to pay you to get this done and whatnot. So they approached Suzuki because eventually Roger and, and Joel had gone to Suzuki. Mm-hmm. So they are actually building a Suzuki now. And this is something Roger would tell about. To take Suzuki frames and whatnot that they had, you know, they were used, used up, so to speak, and give them to Mr. Tilkins to modify and build and weld was a no-no in Suzuki land, right? You, right. Don't, you don't do that. Yeah. You don't do that. But they did. And they, <laughs> they built this back together. And they wrote it, and it was clearly better. And they have this straightaway between the trees. Is it in Mole or Lumen? Anyway, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Roger will tell you that this is his story. Okay. And they're going through this straightaway, and they can go considerably faster okay. and safer, you know. So they're bringing Suzuki people in, and saying, "We really got to get this thing." You know, I mean, Mr. Tilkins is going to sell this patent on this thing, he, you know, and it's going to cost you. So they brought in the Suzuki engineer. And Mr. Tilkins is there, and he's telling him, "This is great stuff. Shock is under the tank; it shoots the bike forward when you hit the bumps." And the Suzuki guy, of course, who's an educated guy, says, "No, that's not it. You know, <laughs> said, that's not it." You know. So, and, and Roger and Sylvan say, "You know, but this is good. We should get it." But the Suzuki guy say, "You know, I cannot justify technically speaking. I cannot explain technically why this thing is better." Because at the time, we still hadn't figured out the travel and the stability, right? Mm. It's, it's, it's Mr. Tilkins is selling the idea of the, <laughs> under the tank, you know, whatever. So, so his so, logic is no
0: good, so but it Suki works. So Suzuki passes. Say,
1: we, we're not going to get it. And Roger is just completely forlorn, right? Mm. What the hell are we going to do? So, Torsten Holman is now with Yamaha, right? And Yamaha is next in, in line to being offered. There are stories here that I can't, Validate or verify that whether Husqvarna was involved. Uh, they probably showed it to several people, mm-hmm. but Torsten thinks this could be good. So he's he's saying, you know, we need to test. And this is now the modifying Yamaha, right? And, and they're testing it. And they are behind curtains, you know, they're closed gates, you know, people can get into the test track, you yeah. know. They have people with megaphones saying, hard to bark, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, Honda style, they used to do that or yeah. with radio saying, you know. Let yeah, the bike incredibly Incredible. secretive. So they yeah. developed it with Yamaha. And, and Hakan Engel was quite um, negative at first because he was already winning on the two-shocker. You know? Why do you want to change your winning horse? Right? But eventually, in 73, I forgot the name of the track in Belgium. It's one of those you know, older tracks in right? Yeah, And he, he's bouncing around on his two-shocker. Two so he, they wheeled this thing out. Nobody knew. Nobody knew what this thing was, and he's wheeling it out, and he's he's riding its practice, and people are just flabbergasted. No shock? Where are the shocks? And people are just plastered around this thing. They hide the bike after practice, and they wheel it up to the starting line, and people are like "Fly, taking pictures. He wins the race. Can you imagine the shock in the motocross community that's going through here?
0: Oh, I mean, yeah, it must have been just yeah. everyone's And I'm talking really to not
1: the one to tell the story. It's not my story, but it is how it's been told to me. And, mm. of course, Yamaha, that puts Yamaha on the map, and they developed the whole That's thing. That's
0: the monoshock. That's so the they bought the rights to this. They bought yes, the frame sir. and design from me. Exactly. Him.
1: So now I'm with Honda, right? It's 78, many years later. And I'm bending on this thing, and I'm trying to figure out... Because we were losing chains.
0: And there was a lot of teams losing. I didn't mean to interrupt you, yeah. but uh, I want to say Lackey was throwing a lot of chains too on his Kawasaki's, right? Yeah. That, was a, the, that was a very common yeah. thing. And, that and
1: on the Husky eventually, because mm-hmm. he was apparently putting a lot of mm-hmm. force on the bike going sideways. So anyway, long story, Brad, Brad should tell you the story about Husqvarna mm-hmm. and the chains coming off. But, but Maybe it was Husqvarna. Maybe that's what I'm thinking of. Exactly he did tell me exactly the way that. you're t- talking about the chain. Yeah. Well, you know, this other guy doesn't throw any chains. It's got to be you. Yeah. You know, you have to cut back a little bit you know maybe yeah. you shouldn't go you know
0: write it differently
1: brad saying that's what i'm hired for you know <laughs> so that's what's happening you know but yeah. anyway so here i am now at, at honda and and trying to figure out what the chain's coming off and you know long story short i did a lot of work and we're bending it and dave arnold and i are finally working on this thing and 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 uh, I, I give some numbers on And how the chain should stay on. And by the way, I did, you know, some of the new chain guides, you know, that actually encloses the sprocket.
0: Yeah, it was just one side on the outside, right?
1: I figured out, you know, that when the thing bends, the the chain chain guide's got to go with the sprocket. Right. You know, it's not going to go with the swing arm like it was. So I built this new chain guide that closes sprocket the First one to do that, actually, hmm. you know, oh, yeah? I, I take some pride in that, huh. and and you know, and we built the swing arm, and I gave some numbers, and I, I wrote a long report, which I still have a copy of. That's the time, you know, when you actually drew my hand, you know, on the report and made photocopies. That kind of cut, that was really cut and paste. Yeah, you know, the original <laughs> copy, did, and the paste. original cut yeah. and paste. You know, and I sent it all to Japan, and then I became the team manager, and then in November of seventy nine. At the Anaheim, because Anaheim was in November at the, those years, here comes the bike, you know, with monoshock and a new swing arm and all the stuff with, with the chain guide and all the
0: stuff. So they it. were receptive to it yeah. right away. Now, when you were designing that and, and working on that, were, did you have that Yamaha bike in mind? Had you guys gotten one of those to play with? Or was that work stuff that you couldn't get, the the...
1: Well, we could have bought a bike, okay. but I didn't. I they had think. it
0: in a production in seventy-five. You, know you said
1: yeah. yes, seventy-five. You could buy Yamaha yeah. monoshocks shocks. Yeah. Okay, and people would put them under pickup trucks and drive down the street, and people would say, "There's no sharks. You know, where's the yeah. sharks?" Yeah, yeah. Remember that? So that happened. But anyway, now with Honda, they built a new and the first swing arm that came were made out of solid, mm. solid aluminum. Okay, because they needed to get the stiffness they wanted. You know, that that was their up. solution. That was their solution. Okay. So we Heavy had to, though then, right? Yeah. 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 So and the bikes was really good. And the, the, and the single shock in the back with the linkage. We had tested linkage before at Honda, but we had linkage on each of the shocks in the back. I don't know if oh, you ever oh, seen that. No, I've seen never those seen those pictures, that. You know? That's and interesting. we had that in, 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 uh, in 1980. Okay. And then the who were
0: your team riders at Honda those years? Johnny
1: Anson hmm. and Chuck uh, Sun and Marty. Your, are your Marty stat... Trips. Was your stat there?
0: He had gone by the time. Okay. Yeah.
1: But Marty was the best guy I ever worked with as a test ride, Marty Tripes.
0: Hmm.
1: He was really good. Really? Yeah, really good. And we had actually a test day in Santa Maria at the Sand out there. Okay. We had rented the place. A long story came out of that. But we had all, you know, the almost Kawasaki Suzuki's there, and we rode them all. And, and that was before we got, you know, the, the modified bike from Japan. And Marty is a good rider. You know, he is really good at telling you what he needs. He is good at getting traction and getting himself right where the bike has the best traction and not flipping over. And at the end of this, you know, we were struggling. At the end of this, he said, you know, the best bike we have here is the Yamaha. I want to paint it red and race it next year as a Honda.
0: Marty said that? Marty said that. What were you guys... What do you say to that? We, well,
1: we knew we were in trouble, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And we had all these shocks and all these swing arms and all these parts. And that's when the work started, you know, towards the monoshock. And, and then we had as a result of that.
0: So that following year, you said 79 when it showed up? Yeah. Was that a works bike? They weren't selling that.
1: Oh, yeah. No, no. It was two works. But Chuck Sun was a rider. You know, we came to Anaheim. And it was watercoloured,
0: mm. which
1: we didn't know at the time when we got the bikes. Oh, really? That would be a That was coat. a surprise to even you guys. was a and everybody gathering around, and Kawasaki is mm-hmm. gathering around, saying, "You know, we're going to protest this thing because this is dangerous. What if the cap comes off when the rider crashes and somebody gets burnt?" <laughs> so big meeting in the, ta- in, the yeah. in the in yeah. the trailer, and the compromise was that we promised to safety wire to radio the radiator cap to the to the to the radiator. Oh, that's that funny. Solution that's
0: out. a little desperate for on their part, right? Like well, they're that, just that's going. how
1: it goes, right? Yeah. That's what you do.
0: Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Um, and so, how was that that seventy nine works bike? I mean, did you guys eclipse where the Yamaha was?
1: Yes, I would say so. I haven't thought of it as, thought of it in those terms, but I think we did. But there was a lot of work to do. And then in nineteen eighty, Roger is brought in. You know, he's actually a first hired by Japan hmm. to us be our test rider, and he was allowed to ride Grand Prix as well. And he took Dave Arnold with him and went to Europe with with the new linkage old, and Dave. They did a lot of work in Europe on the linkage, on the ratios. Okay. Because we, although we had many different ra- ratios, we had charts and graphs from the engineers in Japan. And that's good. But we didn't know how they worked and, and what you needed to do and as far as adjusting damping with it. And Roger and Dave worked in Europe in 1980 with O-Links and, and the damping and and. Uh, and and uh, getting the, re- the re- linkage ratios and the damping combination right. And as you know, Roger won his last race that year in, in the Luxembourg, Luxembourg Grand Prix yeah. you know, with that bike. You know, and mm. and he so he he ended up his career on a winning note. You know, yeah. yeah. So That's, a lot that sounds about right. I a mean, lot of work to yeah. be
0: done. Yeah, and it, there is a big uh, distinction between what looks good on paper, what what might you know factor out on paper in a mathematical oh, yeah. equation versus. That doesn't always equate to what feels good on the track, right? Right, yeah. So that year was probably very important. And
1: Dave you know, put himself into this analysis of linkage ratios and progression curves and whatnot. I was a manager at the time, and I was taken up by other things, not technical solutions of detail, stuff yeah. like that. Yeah. Not to say that we didn't have other problems, but... <laughs>
0: yeah. Dave was a genius. We've had him on the show. Dave Arnold is... Yeah. What a great guy! Great guy, did you much, enjoy working with him? I mean, I just i am so fascinated by yeah, him. You yeah. know, we
1: live close to up there, so oh, do you? We, we, we talk is of, often, yeah, uh, oh, he's so great. He, but he took on that as a specialty and, and and knows still to this day all the ratios and the and the and the, you know geometry of suspension mm. like no other person,
0: yeah. And it's definitely a science, isn't it? Yeah, um, okay, boy, I kind of lost where we went. So, dirt bike. Um, you left there, kind of, we talked about that, the gasser. Um, why did you leave Honda? Um, three good years. This seemed like, to me, Honda was just, that was like the beginning when they, you know, 1979, 80, which now is starting to make more sense when you talk about that 79 works bike. That was the beginning of, man, for a 10-year a run or more.
1: Right, right.
0: They were pouring more money into it than anyone. They had more success than anyone. It was like that. That's an iconic era that I don't think will ever be duplicated. Right.
1: The, the Japan wanted to beat Yamaha real well, and there's stories about that. Mm-hmm. You know, and they assigned a new technical leader by name of Mr. Miyakoshi. Okay, and he came here, and he had unlimited budgets and and people to do this thing, and and I was part of that, and and the. A lot of fun things happen you know, because when you have unlimited resources and that kind of stuff. It's everybody's
0: every engineer's dream, right? Yeah,
1: that, that's right. So, but he was good, and and one funny thing was you know, he had given us a bunch of sharks to test on the 125s. You know, when well, we still had two sharks right. in the back, 79 then, and and uh, and we come back and he's saying, "How was it?" I say, "It's terrible. You know, the bikes are all over. You know, and they're bouncing, and the riders are careful and almost afraid." He says. But he said, What's the lap time? And I said, Mr. Miyakoshi, we haven't even gotten to lap times yet, you know, because bikes are so bad. And he's saying, Darn it, darn it, that is the problem with Americans. It's all about feeling. I need lap times to make a decision. Hmm. So we still use that now with Lars. I need lap times to make a decision. (laughs) But the, the, the organization at the time was so chaotic. We were in American Honda. You know, we didn't have an org chart, we didn't have a budget, you know, we didn't have a a, a business objective of anything, and I was thrown in to this thing here because the previous manager had quit all of a sudden. Which was whom? Um,
0: Try to think of who preceded you there.
1: Yeah, I can't remember. Okay. You know, And so he was not available to me to talk to, so I was thrown into this chaotic situation, and there was no real, I didn't know who I reported to, for a while there you know and you know that was okay. just you know miyakoshi was the technical guy right but so you know that was very chaotic and you know this is what i call it eight days a week type of a job right so we did that for two years and at the time i was just completely wore out my mm-hmm. family was about to fall apart
0: you oh know? so you were married at that point yeah okay yeah
1: so you know and is yeah. your
0: wife did you meet her here sorry no, she you... was a swedish girl she was a swedish she girl. okay
1: with Mia. yeah, yeah. And and uh sorry, I, I couldn't carry on. And occasionally we talked about things like motorcycling and competition. And, you know, it, it's not even part of LA Times, you know, right, you know when right. you read it all. So we had this saying, we're saying, you know, what about if by some decree tomorrow, motorcycling is canceled? There's no more motorbikes, street bikes, dirt bikes, nothing at all. What kind of a story would there be in LA Times? Would it be even on the last page? You know, mm. nobody cares. It's a sporting tool, and it's a very limited number of people, and it's very, you know, uh, isolated in itself. So we said, you know, I'd like to work on something that has more of an impact on society, something that really helps along, that has something to do with everyday life, mm-hmm. you know. So many of us talked about, you know, Honda, Honda had just started with the automobile. The Accord had just came out. We had Uh-oh. a little Civics before. And they were the growing, you know, that was just an exploding top of the view. So I, I stuck my neck in the door one day and said, No, can I get a job? <laughs> they say, Come on in, you know, we need everybody we can get. Yeah. So I transferred at the end of 80 to the Honda service department as a service engineer. Okay. and eventually became involved in in two projects one was brake systems and one was, ele- one was electrical systems and and wow. never looked back ever since
0: yeah i mean and, and and great insight on your part right i mean cars are not going away one one way shape or form right. but you're right dirt bikes are never gonna right. you know we always talk about how we want the sport to grow but it's like you're only going to capture this much of the right. population, no matter what. Yeah. It's, um,
1: but I mean, that was at the dead end, you know, with, yeah. with the amount of money I put in. I'm sorry, the amount of time I put in, yeah. you know. And, and
0: you valued your family, right? Yeah. Like this yeah. is something yeah. you probably can relate to this. I, I look at guys like Roger who have been doing this for so long. Uh, Eric Kehoe was another guy yeah. who came to mind. And yeah. I think he finally was just like, I'm out. Yeah. It is so consuming. Your phone doesn't stop ringing. That's right. The hours are insane. You're gone every weekend. It's not They don't give you Monday off because you. You
1: have phone and text. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, Facebook.
0: Uh, I, I I got a lot of respect for the people yeah. that follow that circus yeah. around. Uh, you, you year gotta after year. You got to
1: build a wall around you, you know, and and uh, trying to focus on what you're doing. Yeah. And I think Lars is doing a good job of that.
0: You mm. know? Yeah. It's it's tough, and I, I don't know that people they always think, oh, what a dream job. Yeah. huh. Careful what you wish for. Exactly. I, I, I managed a team for two years, and it was the busiest I had ever been. Right. And I just said, right. and, I, and, I need to spend more time with my family. So and you know how to
1: handle. You 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 gotta know how to handle it. conflict. Yeah, yeah. Conflict resolution, you know, is the first thing. And I didn't know that. You know, I had to learn on the job. Mm-hmm. You know, and and I had nobody to talk to, and you know, negotiating, you know, with with new writers and and whatnot, and you know. What's was very difficult.
0: Yeah. Very difficult. It's a tough job. Yeah. Was there any riders or, uh, you know, from your years there, any riders that you dealt with that stand out that were good or bad or?
1: Well, Marty Tripes was the guy. Yeah.
0: Because he knew. Yeah. You know,
1: he knew yeah. the bike.
0: He was a character. is a character.
1: He's is a character, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But at the time, you know, he was not that much of a character. He was just a good writer and, and he knew. And he, I mean, we are at the, he was such a good writer. He could analyze what he needed to do, where he needed to go, how much risk he wanted to take.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: We're at the, uh, in Unadilla. I think it was a Grand Prix of sorts because the Euro writers were there. We're standing in the infield and he goes around and that's the one they do timing by hand, right? So we can read the time, you know, and he said, you know, what is, what's it going to take to get, Whole position, whatever you call it now, number one, right? you, you, you're you a second and a half off. He's saying, I know where to get that, but it's risky. Mm. So we said, well, we don't want to take any risks. He says, well, he said, let me compromise. I'll do a little bit of it and see where we can go. And he goes out, you know, and darn if he didn't do it. Yeah. You know, he was top there.
0: I've heard people talk about how he stood a lot. He could stand yeah. up through sections yeah. where other yeah. guys couldn't and just...
1: He's coming back a little bit now, you know, yeah. standing up through the corners. Yeah. Yeah. You know, talk to Blessing about that. Yeah. 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 But anyway, you know, but he could do that <laughs> and he knew and he stood a lot and therefore he could move his weight for traction. Yeah. You know, hmm. he was really good at it.
0: That's interesting. Um, do you feel... Was there any feeling of uh, betrayal going to Honda after, you know... I mean, you got Husqvarna flown through your blood, you know? Yeah. No. No? Okay. <laughs> no.
1: Because um, they had shot themselves in the foot.
0: Yeah, good point. Yeah. They to- I didn't know that they, they yeah. had told you no on yeah, that one exactly. position. So okay. on there, no. yeah.
1: And one of the things I wanted to do when I worked there, and if I was going to be in charge of something, anything, you know, was to work according to a certain system, you know, gathering information, getting the riders in, you know, having test sessions, uh, evaluate the competitors and whatnot, which didn't happen, right? Mm-hmm. So here I am a few years later, I'm starting at Honda. And I'll be darned if they don't work exactly like that. And that was such satisfaction to me in that they worked exactly the way that I had envisioned that yeah. I wanted to work with Oscar. Mm-hmm.
0: Bittersweet, maybe a little bit though. I mean, you kind of wish you could have done that with your, yeah. your I home brand. I think
1: bittersweet is a good word. Yeah. Hmm.
0: Something I've noticed about Honda, and I don't know if the other manufacturers do this as much, at least now, and maybe they didn't then, but let's say you are, you know, head of two wheel motorsports. You get a couple few years there, but then they move you to this division. Then a couple years later, they'll move you to this division. And you may bounce from automobile to four, to like side-by-sides to dirt bikes and they want you to get a little bit more of a, a feel, a, a larger feel of the company and learn some things And because, you know, they don't want you to get still in that one spot. True story. I True think story. that's interesting. Um, in, in one way, like if you're a motorcycle guy, you might feel like, well, I don't care about cars. You know, what the heck? But I think a lot of once people do that, they go, oh, I did learn a lot. And I can apply this from here. And, you know, mm-hmm. I think it's smart of them. And I don't know that other brands do that.
1: Well, it's uh, developing the person, mm-hmm. you know, and you're encouraged to take you know whatever courses or trainings you can do, and sometimes they bring it in, in internally. Mm-hmm. They have people coming in. You deal with you know um, you know negotiating skills, that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. which I took, you know, and and whatnot. So it's good, and and uh, I used to joke about that. I I couldn't hold a job within Honda. They kicked <laughs> me around to to several people. You keep moving your, head. you know, yeah. You know? I was in yeah. so many different positions and mm-hmm. i was lucky enough to do good in some and maybe not so good in others and others mm-hmm. you know but they keep you moving you around because yeah. i don't want you to stale
0: yeah you know
1: and stagnate
0: yeah it's fascinating uh yeah. you know theory and, and it seems to work really well for him
1: yeah i was you know in, in i wasn't racing with cars you know and then i was with hvd and the engine manufacturer and that kind of stuff. So,
0: That's pretty cool, right? Because you're getting to see stuff yeah. that maybe didn't interest you so much yeah. before, but then once you dive yeah. into it, it's like, wow. Yeah. yeah. What yeah. was your favorite division then of all of the places you went there?
1: Well, the the, um, the auto service what it was the one where things happened, right? Okay. You know, you didn't design cars from scratch. That was done in Japan, and we all were often in Japan driving certain new concepts. And one of the best cars I ever drove was actually a a uh, um, uh, another a s what's a supercharged integra. You know, they built a special engine. Okay. We had some turbocharging, but supercharging is different. That was a wonderful car. Huh. But it turned out it didn't pass the price. Oh. You know, you could build it for a price that people would pay for it, oh. what have you. So so we did a lot of work there, you know, and, and what have you. So but the most interesting time was when we started the Acura Division. 87. Okay. You know, we we're going to build a luxury brand. And, uh, you know, Lexus had just came out, come out and we we're going to duplicate them. And we we're going to build this big new car called the Legend, you know, a big V6 engine. We never had a V6 engine before. Right? Oh, okay. And, and there were virtually no limits to what you could do or were allowed to do to get it right.
0: Hmm. And we would co- Budgetary or otherwise? Just. Otherwise.
1: We would go to Japan on a two hour notice. Wow. So it was a wonderful time because you had freedom to do things, you know, and, and, and some of the things we needed to do that I'd learned from, at the time I actually became quite involved in wiring, you know, harnesses, mm-hmm. you know, and we, at the 82 Accord, which was my first car, you know, as a service engineer, had terrible wiring <laughs> mm-hmm. And we came to learn that the wiring in, 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 in the cars and then what you see in the service manual are not always the same. Oh, really? Because, you know, service manuals are made by other people and they follow some drawings. But on the assembly line, they realize when they p- plug something together, the turn signals don't work <laughs> the way they should. So they move wires around to get things to work. And that never really ends up, you know, with the service manual oh. folk. So we had a lot of of, uh, of difficulties there when people cause, And in a new model like that, there's always no kind of issues. Mm-hmm. I mean, we had most... People open the trunk and the turn signals come on. I mean, I'm not kidding you, but really? it happens to all brands, you know, yeah, at yeah. first, you know. So we'd, we'd, we'd be crawling we'd be inside the car and we you know, underneath the seat, trying to look at harnesses. We'd say, hell with this thing. So we ordered up harnesses from parts, you know, that's a new part. And we bolted them on pegboards, you know. We had the whole car laid out, the electrical system. And dealers would call in and say, I got this car and it does this and it does that. And we actually established something called the Tech Line, where dealers were encouraged to call in, you know, when they had odd problems. Hmm. I don't know how to do this. It doesn't fit. Because once you learn, one dealer has a problem, most likely a bunch of other dealers would have the same problem, yeah. right? So we became the center of information, and we actually put together this wiring harness, and I have pictures you know of the on pegboards of the whole 82 Accord. And eventually we would make a little drawing of this called Honda wiring, the way the car really is. <laughs> Which was of course different from the service from the manual, manual, right? And of course people from Japan saying, you can't do that, you know, there's stuff wrong with the mail. So we showed them and they go, hmm, yeah, maybe there is something going yeah. on here. So we actually, we hired a company. We did this first ourselves. But we hired a company eventually called Valley Forge, which had a specialty of doing this. And they showed, it was a whole book, just the wiring. Each connector, where the wires go, what color the wire is. Jeez. And that was probably one of my biggest accomplishments within mm. Honda, to to come up with this wiring manual eventually and mm. get that done.
0: Well, especially these days, everything's plugged in and wired, and those wiring harnesses are sec- yeah. six, $7,000 $7, a piece. Oh, yeah. It's crazy yeah just look
1: at a 450 motocross
0: yeah i mean the sensors guess, there are there we're not far off Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah.
0: was there any you mentioned at acura there was this really cool car that never made production because cost issues or whatever was there ever anything in the motorcycle world that that was really trick or something that you thought would work but budgetary wise or for whatever reason it didn't see production can't talk about it
1: the uh <laughs> the um the
0: automatic Oh yeah whatever they ran it in uh Baja or something once, yeah. right? Yeah, there were, there were some races in Japan. Maybe Chuck, Su- were, or, uh, Chuck Miller wrote Chuck it? Chuck Miller, maybe so.
1: Mm-hmm. I didn't have any direct involvement, technically speaking, with it. You know, it was on the horizon. I told Dave Arnold would know because mm. he took off after I left. Mm. I took over after I left. Right. And and uh, But it was one of those things. It was okay, you know, but it was too expensive and the serviceability was nowhere near, you know, what you can do in the pit, right, taking the right. side cover off. Right, so
0: at one point I want to say Honda didn't Honda make a, a bicycle, like a mountain bike or a bicycle that was automatic? Do you remember that? Mm-hmm.
1: No. They could it pr- have probably it was after you left. left it would have been uh, yeah.
0: early nineties. After me, anyway. Um, yeah. Tell but me
1: a- the, the, the the auto racing side was very interesting. You know, because we, we did V8 engines for Indy and that kind of stuff. Yeah, and I have actually stood in the dyno room. I've seen a thousand horsepower. At sixteen thousand RPM on the Honda V8.
0: How how far into your ears were your knuckles buried? To... <laughs> well,
1: it's the engine is in a different. Oh, way. it's in a okay. You're it's separate. Outside yeah. the window, you know, and the exhaust pipes are glowing red on both sides.
0: Oh, right. that's got to be cool. That's something. Yeah, the 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 Indian Formula One stuff's got to be really yeah. cool to get involved yeah. with. Yeah. Um, where do you see us going technologically with Moto? And and kind of going back to my original question: How you've seen all of these eras and you. You know, when you got started, four-stroke engines were like considered old technology. We really ran the the gamut through two-stroke technology where, you know, I talked to Mitch as the as the four-strokes were just coming in and he said, we've kind of reached the limit of what we can do on a two-stroke, keeping it inside of what's affordable, what people will pay. Maybe you could get into, maybe you could get into more. And now, now we've got fuel injected two-strokes, but in terms of performance, I don't know what the how much more we can get out of that so i'm curious to think now here we are four strokes again we're bumping up against really expensive prices um where do you see us going Will will we will it stay four stroke and continue to advance maybe we look at pneumatic valves maybe that doesn't happen or is electric really coming yeah you think it is yeah yeah and what do you think of that because like a motor guy as a as a motor because guy I, I, am, I hate
1: it i'm old I I seem, I seem to think that somebody needs to hear vroom, vroom, vroom. And if you don't hear that, that's not the world. Well, you should go to one of the electric car races, you know, Formula E that they have. Uh-huh. You know, it's big, big business now, uh-huh. you know. And people there, you know, with their phones, looking at their phones and they're looking the old, I mean, it's all online, right? It's like, wow, look at this guy, he is... Two kilowatt hours better, you know, halfway than this guy said. And now he's got this turbo extra boost, you know. Let me push a button here and give him my support. And then, you now he gets a little more power and down the straightaway. You know, this is a new generation. You know, uh-huh. us old guys, we, we have we have our you know, we think that car racing has to have room, room, right? You know.
0: Well, I hear not, your story about l- looking at that IndyCar engine, yeah. and I mean, it makes me smile. Yeah. But I think of an electric bike, just, that yeah. just, but it's,
1: we're yeah. old, yeah. you know, look at how many yeah. people now have electric bicycles. Yeah. You know?
0: Hmm. Yeah. And, so, and I don't hate them. I've ridden some electric. I had, you know, the, the last Alta version that came out, sure. uh, which is, there's much better things than that. Now I had a blast riding that thing. Great. So they're. it's not that they aren't fun. It's just, it's different. It's and different. they're going to have their own issues. It's an, you know?
1: Oh, of course there are.
0: Uh, battery life, battery recharging replacement. Absolutely. So. Oh Yeah. But you think but, that's, how long would you say? If you had to guess, how long? Well, look are,
1: at the VARC, that's out?
0: I know. I haven't written it yet either, yeah. but.
1: The problem is, and I actually dealt with this a little bit with AMA and FIM, is that we have no organization that are writing any rules. Yeah. And the the, the regular folk, AMA, are afraid to let them in and write, you know, the 250 race or the 450 race. Because what if they get beat?
0: Well how do you, th- this is the question uh, and I've heard this discussed amongst the groups of those people who would make those decisions is it isn't cubic centimeters you know they, they probably screwed up going from two stroke to four in the number of cc's they allow, allowed right like they underestimated how good you could make a four stroke engine
1: yeah so i said parentheses who would imagine a four a four stroke engine turning 14000 rpm we didn't turn 14000 on the 125 two
0: strokes yeah it's it's it is crazy right and Wow, I don't know where the limit is. No, but but at least you were dealing in cubic centimeters. You could, I don't know. There's some sort of continuity now. If, how how do you gauge it? You know, I don't even know how you measure power. <laughs> you know, well, yeah, but, you know, uh, I don't know. So yeah. I think they don't know either, and they're yeah. they're trying to figure that out. And exactly, um, exactly. Maybe it's a, a se- yeah. That's for people smarter than me. I just didn't know if maybe you had an answer. I'm, to that. I'm not an electric no
1: electronics engineer yeah. but i know there's the ways to limit the output mm. there's a way to limit how much energy you carry in mm. other words the size of the battery you what
0: know? about hydrogen or something like that is there any potential there i know a lot of the japanese manufacturers have been racing endurance series with those kind of cars and the only byproduct from that is water so environmentally very sound mm-hmm. a little sketchy refueling no, and you're no. carrying a bomb around but but no,
1: no, I don't not, know. At all. not at all but I actually have some knowledge because I worked for the alternative fuels side of Honda for many years. And the joke is, hydrogen is the fuel of the future and always will be.
0: So there's, I'm trying to read between the lines, too many problems or issues to make it actually happen?
1: Yeah, and the problem mainly is in manufacturing and distribution. Of hydrogen. Yeah. There's a little bit of problem that if you're going to run it as a fuel cell, which converts the fuel, you know, back to electric, electric engine. Um, Toyota has done some work trying to run it in the combustion, combusting hydrogen in the combustion chambers. Okay. In, in other words, it's a reciprocating engine. And I've kind of lost touch a little bit about that. But the problem with hydrogen, well, the, uh, the yeah, is that the hydrogen atoms are so small that they leak through just about everything you know oh. to have a tank to hold hydrogen has to be very very you know um dense material t- dense, or, that's yeah, your word. Yeah. yeah that's a word and you know to run it in an engine it leaks through past your piston rings like there's no tomorrow oh so that is an issue that Toyota is tackling not sure how far they've gone on it but but uh Interesting. And, you know we had a hydrogen fuel cell with honda when i worked for that department and you know we had a natural gas car which i still have one of you know works great but you know manufacturing and distribution and, and therefore refueling you know is an, yeah. is an issue hmm. cost is not you know it's a cost-benefit ratio
0: yeah and, and again you know we always think well that's 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 the best answer why aren't we doing that but again yeah. motorcycling is yeah do, do, the, do the manufacturers i mean outside of ktm which just hmm. makes motorcycles do they even really consider us or are we just sort of a, you know, mot- motocross? It's just sort of a side thing. Like, here's a few bucks, kids. Go play.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, you have to be encouraged by several things. You know, there's new brands coming up, you know. Sure. Triumphs yep. coming up yep. and other brands are going to be involved in. So they must have done their research, research and found out that. There's growth here, you know. Mm. You know, it's something we can do and expand. And because any business without growth is stagnating, right? Mm -hmm. You know, so you have to have growth. And and uh, on the other side, street bikes. I'm not into street bikes much, and I don't see a lot of growth there.
0: Not not from a racing or recreation side here. Yeah. Uh, it seems like the street side only grows in transportation in like third world countries. You yeah, know, smaller bikes. Yeah, yeah, that's where they sell exactly. a ton yeah. of those things. But
1: good, a lot of good stories there. But, yeah, but yeah. Uh, you know that. Uh, yeah, it's so in the
0: US, worldwide. Yeah, you've lived a fascinating life. It has been so fun uh, just going through it, <laughs> and, and had such did. an impact on our sport that I don't. I don't know that everybody really knows. You know, and and I don't know if you fully realize it when you look back at your life and career what are what are some of the things you've done that are you're, you're most proud of
1: well that's a good question i mean the gunner gasser obviously was a successful business mm-hmm. that survived for over 10 years when i thought it'd be two years yeah you know? so it went well and and um so as far as technically you know like i invented this or i did that that disappears in a myriad of other inventions Not a thing to do right but i i think i um i'm proud of my kids yeah there you go yeah you yeah. know they, they've grown up to be good contributing to the sport to whatever they chose to do you know and and uh and and uh, they do well
0: do you have other sons or kids outside I, of lars i have
1: three sons and a daughter
0: Oh, look at you! Okay, yeah. and what are they? Are they in the industry or no?
1: Well, no, okay. Lars is. <laughs> yeah, 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 and and he's been in it for longer than I ever was because he started as a kid. You know, I mean, he he, I know he told you he has told you this, but he wanted to buy a bike from Honda from the sports department. I was working with cars at the time, so I told him go and see this guy and. He goes to see the guy at Honda Sports, you know, at the race team. And he says, can I buy an old practice bike? And I said, no, we don't have practice bike. We throw things out, but we have a bunch of stuff in a corner here, you know, there's a frame and there's part of an engine and here's this and that. He said, if you can put this thing together, you can buy it. Oh, really? Yeah, that's how he started. <laughs> and that. he put it thing together and got it going. And, you know, somebody I guess was impressed. And he said, said you know what? Can you put together another one? <laughs>
0: you gotta be you another
1: one and another one so it fi- finally he was working there you know cleaning up and putting stuff together
0: I didn't know that's how he started and there. That's, that's how he started
1: huh. and eventually you know he was actually paid after for after a little while
0: yeah putting know. putting all those parts yeah. into you know? something they could actually and, sell and on. then he got
1: involved with the test team and then he got involved you know with with, with Kevin Windham and others you know and, yep. and, uh, he was like price. special
0: projects guy he was yeah. like the, yeah. the Swiss army knife he yeah. was anyway. yeah. <laughs> another one yeah. You
1: know, so he did good there, and he, you know, it is so different the way he started as a team manager. From I was thrown in there in a chaotic situation; nobody knew what was going on. Guy yeah. had quit, you know, and people were threatening to quit that I was still there. And you know, we had—I didn't know anybody who was going to give me some good advice. Versus when he started, you know, very well planned, you know. Yeah. He added, you know, uh, uh, Eric Key as a mentor for, for years, you know, mm-hmm. and he learned how to work this and that. He was in a machine shop. He was here. He was testing. He was there. So he knew the whole business in a different way than I, had, I ever did. So mm. he's he's earned it.
0: Well, I mean, he's doing a great job. He's yeah. racking up 250 championships left mm-hmm. and right, and I think, uh, you know, he's got that place going in the right direction. So. Yeah. Yep. Uh, Well, our last question we ask everybody is how you want to be remembered in the sport of motocross or motorcycling in general.
1: Oh, that's kind of emotional, but, you know, I wanted to be a good guy that was shot straight, you know, and didn't do any curves and whatnot. So, uh, And uh, uh, contributed to the sport, to to the brand, to to motorcycling. Um, yeah, Yeah, yeah.
0: Well, I mean, Street Shooter, going through your story here, I don't see how there's any way you you wouldn't be remembered that way. I mean, you, you, yeah, you're, you. you're developing products, developing bikes. Yeah. Uh, you, you were into media for a while. I mean, yeah, you've really you've yeah. done awesome stuff. So, yeah. yeah, congrats on an amazing career. Well, thank you. And thank you. Uh, are you retired now, officially? Yeah,
1: I'm actually. Yeah, uh, involved in a few small projects as an advisor. Yeah, you know, and what have you. So uh, I may have a Swedish guy coming over here to ride the nationals in this late summer.
0: Oh yeah. So I'll be managing. Team manager again. Look at you go. (laughs) (laughs) What do you do for fun when you're, when you're just, uh, you got some time on your hands? I
1: got a little race car from Miller Ford.
0: And you drive? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, I've done that for 30 years. Button
1: Willow and just wherever. Yeah. Willow Springs. Cool. You know, mid Ohio. Yeah. That
0: kind of stuff. Oh wow. Yeah. Well listen, thank you so much for taking the time. It's been just an absolute honor. Good Uh, meeting you too. Yeah. Going through your story. It's fascinating and, yeah, hang your head high, man. What a cool career and well, life. Thank yeah, thank you. So thank All you right. so much. Hope you guys enjoyed that, Gunnar Lindström. Stay tuned. We're gonna be back here to close out the show.
4: I wanna be
2: bad with you, girl, like All right,
0: guys. I thanks for tuning in again for myself. a show that uh, I thought was phenomenal. What a what a great story from Gunnar. And uh, if you're a fan of of history of this sport, man, he's on a very very short list of people who've been there from motocross's early early years in Europe, <laughs> and then been a part of bringing it here, uh, and then be a part of American racing at at Factory Honda and a lot of the inventions and development he was doing. Uh, just awesome story, and what a what a great guy, super friendly, super nice, so sharp. Um, so stoked we got him on. Hope you enjoyed it. Um, as always, uh, you know, we, we go out of our way to make sure we're only partnering with high end quality companies. So if you are in the market for any of our sponsors stuff, please check them out first. Um, if we don't support them. We can't continue to bring you, bring you this show. Uh, that's how we fund it. So uh, thank you guys for always tuning in. Appreciate all the support and a big thank you to Gunnar Lindstrom for making the time to come in today. We'll see you guys soon at our next show. The Whiskey Throttle Show is brought to you by Yamaha. Join the blue crew today and take advantage of all that Yamaha has to offer, including amateur racing trackside support, awesome Yamaha contingency, Jason Rain's demos and instructional classes, and frankly, the most high-performing motorcycles available on the market today. Whether you're looking for a four-stroke, a two-stroke, a side-by-side, a quad, a boat, a generator, Yamaha prides themselves on absolute top-level quality and reliability. Rev your heart with Yamaha and join the blue crew today. Method Race Wheels, bringing you the lightest, strongest, fastest wheels in off-road for your truck, van, sprinter, UTV, or SUV. They've been dominating the Baja 500 and 1000 and every major off-road event around the world for years with high quality and performance. They also look amazing. They come in a bunch of different styles and colors for your rig, so check them out. You can get 20% off a set of wheels using our code Throttle. No capitals, no spaces, 20% off using our code. Check them out. Troily Designs is the leader in off-road motocross apparel and style. So whether you're looking for a cool new paint job for your helmet, maybe your name and number on your helmet lettered on, you're looking for new gear, you're looking for mountain bike gear, off-road gear, they've got the brand new Scout line in GP and SE models. Troily Designs has it all. They've been leading this industry for decades, and they're going to continue to do it. Check out TroilyDesigns.com. SKDA is a motographics and seat covers company with several offices based around the globe. For too long, bikes and graphics have all looked the same. They just start to blend together. SKDA is working to change that. With super clean and unique design work, a bike with SKDA graphics stands out in a crowd and adds a touch of art to the world of moto. Hey, we need that. SKDA prides itself on providing premium customer service both before and after the sale is made. Visit SKDA online to view the current product range and get in touch with their team to get your bike refreshed. I want to just make a, a mention here that these guys, not only is their design way outside the box, very, very cool. They'll work with you on custom things. The, the products are incredible, okay? They'll speak for themselves. But what's really awesome, and you'll notice this the minute you order one of these, man, they give you an email saying, hey, the product's been shipped. Uh, hey, the product is here. It landed in this spot. Hey, it's coming today. Hey, your product's been delivered. They're they just so good about staying in touch with you and letting you know where it's at. Customer service is 100%, and uh, that's just something that's rare these days. Check out SKDA. Here at the Whiskey Throttle Show, we're all about supporting brands that support our sport. And there's one tire company that has never walked away from the sport of motocross and supercross, and it's Dunlop. When times got tough and the economy took a crash, Dunlop stepped up and stayed with our sport to support it and the athletes and individuals that love it. Their MX-53 line and MX-33 lines absolutely dominate this sport. Every national championship at the pro level has been won in the last decade, and nearly every single amateur national championship at Loretta Lynn's has been won on a Dunlop. So if you're looking for high performance, you're looking for amazing quality, and you're looking to support a brand that never turns its back on our sport, there's only one choice for you, and it's Dunlop. Pro Circuit is the leader in aftermarket performance and quality. Whether you're looking for a little more horsepower out of your engine, some quality hard parts to improve the way your bike feels and looks, better handling through suspension or linkage or linkage arms. Pro Circuit is where you need to stop. It's your one-stop shop. You can go in there and get everything you need to make your motorcycle go from average to exceptional. Pro Circuit's got enough number one plates on their wall to side an entire home, and there's a reason for that. They're very, very good at what they do. Uh, The highest quality products with one goal in mind, and that's winning. Check out ProCircuit.com. Nihilo Concepts is leading the way in aftermarket hard parts. With their secondary on-switch device, something that was much needed in this sport, they've been innovating and bringing new products to market. Their latest is the new Nihilo Cool Brake Pistons. They're designed to be stronger than stock and provide exceptional cooling performance with less brake drag. Most OEM calipers pistons are made from aluminum that just can't hold up to the heat and extreme demands of serious racing. When they get hot, the aluminum will distort, causing loss of hydraulic pressure and brake failure. Nihilo's run-cool pistons limit the area that boiling hot hydraulic fluid is able to come in contact with the piston, leaving two-thirds of the piston volume in open air with breather holes to enhance the cooling ability. It's made of a proprietary stainless blend, which is better at dissipating heat. You have issues with brake fade or brake failure Check out Nihilo Concepts among their many amazing hard parts and carbon fiber parts and titanium. Nihiloconcepts.com. Seat Concepts is the leader in motorcycle saddles. If you're looking for a new cover or a new seat entirely, Seat Concepts is the place to go. They make custom seat foams catered to your height, weight, riding ability, riding type. They also have waterproof covers and, and foams that will not break down if you ride in a lot of inclement weather. And they pride themselves on being much more comfortable than OEM or any other aftermarket company. If you're looking for a new seat or a new cover, seat concepts, there's nothing better. Need to replace something on your bike that's worn out? Look no further than Pro-X. These guys aim to make everything OEM quality or better at an affordable price. And they've also got some new products coming. So right now, chains, sprockets, anything inside the, in- the engine internally, air filters. If it wears out, ProX makes it and they make it at a quality level that's OEM or better. And they've got some new things coming that are awesome. A complete engine rebuild kits for the Polaris RZR 800s. Need to replace something on your bike that's worn out? Look no further than ProX. These guys aim to make everything OEM quality or better at an affordable price. And they've also got some new products coming. So right now, chains, sprockets, anything inside the, in- the engine internally, air filters. If it wears out, ProX makes it and they make it at a quality level that's OEM or better. And they've got some new things coming that are awesome. A complete engine rebuild kits for the, if you've got a little Grom that's looking to get started in the motorcycle world, the best way to get them going is on a Stasic bike. They've got multiple sizes, so from your very young Groms to those who are a little more grown up, you can start them safely. They've got controls that allow you to control the speed so he can't get going too quick. They can touch the ground, there's not a lot of noise to distract them. It's the perfect way to get your child involved in motorcycling at a very young age. And if you've got a kid who's already out ripping, there's series popping up all over. For those of you in Southern California, go to www.ameminicross.com and join their local series. If you're outside of this state, contact your local track and ask them about starting a Stasek class at your local track. Get over to Stasic.com and check out all they've got going on. Motul USA. Uh, we, we lean hard on these lubricants to keep us uh, on the track and on the trail. And Motul has proven their quality over and over, uh, most recently with their Dakar win with Ricky Braybeck. Uh, they're sponsoring Supercross teams. They're diving into our sport again full, full throttle, and uh, we're stoked to have them on board. Amazing products, top to bottom. Motul USA. Go check them out. And finally, last but not least, Specialized Bicycles. If you are in the market to start pedaling, This is where you want to start. Uh, They've got great entry-level bikes all the way up to the Cadillac, the new Levo um, uh, e-bike, anything in between, man. It doesn't matter what kind of riding you're doing. Go check out and start with Specialized. Don't waste your time on something that's going to break. The derailleur's not going to shift after a couple months. Get something quality. Uh, These guys make it. Specialized leads that industry. Thanks for watching and listening to the Whiskey Throttle Show. Be sure to like and subscribe to get notified when new shows go up and be sure to follow us on Instagram and TikTok and visit whiskeythrottlemedia.com for additional content.